This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side, helping you get through uh, your daily life. How do we do it? How are we supposed to come to this earth and then not know anything and all of a sudden lead our own lives? Come on. So we're the show that brings you the latest and greatest information, research, insights. Some of them are even important. Not all of them, of course, but uh, we will uh, we'll be doing the show. And today we're going to be talking about celebrity talk. Is there a point where celebrities just should remain quiet? Always. And maybe not get so political. Always. <laughs> and, and, and possibly maybe they shouldn't talk and ruin an award ceremony for you. That's my opinion. My opinion is they're paid millions and millions of dollars to entertain us, and we have enough of these problems on our own that we go to the movies and watch these shows right. to escape. Now, do they have do they have the right to? Is their free speech protected? Or could, for example, when uh, Colin Kaepernick takes a knee and doesn't stand for the national anthem, could the NFL fine him? Could they? Could the NFL force him to stand? We're going to be talking with a true blue expert on the subject. Because, I, I you think know, they're within their right, but we don't have to listen. We're going to find out. And, we, and that's an interesting dynamic here is they, they have rights, but also so does their company. So we'll get into uh, the, the law behind some of these celebrity statements and interestingly – you as a public still have the power to not go see their movie. So if I was a producer and I produced a movie and it wins an Academy Award, I would probably love the people to not have any controversy that would turn people away from my movie. So I would make my actors sign an agreement that they won't embarrass or hinder the marketability of a movie by being political. What would the name of your movie be, by the way? It would be it would be all it would be about jazz. All about jazz? Yeah, it's like it's all not, that jazz. No, no, no. I think that was taken. Uh, it would be because it'd be about jazz, just jazz music, jazz dancers. So that's the so La La Land. Yeah, it would be like La La Land. It would be La La Utah, the lesser known of the La Las. So anyway, we'll get into the uh, celebrity talk. They have rights, right? And so do you. But I just heard a lot of people are frustrated. Frustrated by – but there, there's a powerful position they're in. If you have millions of followers and you believe in something, shouldn't you say something? I think once you reach a certain threshold of money, at that point, you're not allowed to do it. Oh, really? Why? Because you're like – because then you're no longer hindered. You can do whatever Cause we're, we're you paying, want. Because we're paying you the millions of dollars – so you need to entertain us. Yeah. So just yeah, help you, us escape. Like many would say Oprah Winfrey seriously lifted uh, Barack Obama to victory. Probably he may not have been able to win that first time without her. She turned the tide. And if you believe in Barack Obama and you're Oprah Winfrey and you believe in him, should you not use your power and your influence to influence? But then others 
don't want to hear about it. They don't want their favorite stars and actors to be doing that. It's an interesting discussion. And uh, Shantavia Johnson will be joining us to talk about really what's the law behind it, what are the what are the benefits of it historically, and what really is protected and what isn't. Can companies like the 49ers shut down Colin Kaepernick? Uh, I would say yeah. We'll get to all that fun straight ahead. Uh, also, we will be um, – uh, talking with McKenna Bowes, she'll probably be doing – she'll be doing one of our mind benders. She always likes to get our minds to think, you know, in a broader way. We'll see if that can work. Are you just saying that because she's a woman? Yes, I am. And today is what, Jeffrey? It's International Women's Day. International Women's Day. <laughs> Which interestingly, you can, you can – you don't have to only celebrate international women. You can just celebrate national women as well, local women and the women in your family, the women in your life. Was that a jab at me for, for the uh, Employee Appreciation Day? A little bit. Just a little bit of a jab there. Uh, happy International Women's Day. Um, we'll get into more of that as we go through the day. But first, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? President Donald Trump warned House Republicans Tuesday if they can't pass health care legislation after seven years of promises, it could be a, quote, bloodbath in the 2018 midterm election. According to one member present in the meeting, Trump vowed to throw his full support behind the effort to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act during a meeting with House GOP leadership. Trump told members behind closed doors that he would support it 100 percent, according to sources in the room. President Trump has not yet spoken with the FBI about his unsubstantiated claim that he was wiretapped before the election by former President Obama and the White House once again declined to provide evidence for such allegations. Press Secretary Sean Spicer admitted during Tuesday's briefing that there have been no such conversations between Trump and the FBI director and reiterated the administration's calls for House and Senate committees to investigate the matter. When asked whether he agrees with the president's claim about wiretapping, Spicer deflected, I get that it's a cute question to ask. My job is to represent the president. Here's Spicer. It's not a question of new proof or less proof or whatever. It's The answer is the same, which is that, that there is a concern about what happened in the 2016 election. The House and Senate Intelligence Committee have the staff and the capabilities uh, and the processes in place to look at this in a way that's objective, and that's where it should be done. And frankly, if you've seen the response from, especially on the, on the House side, but as well as the Senate, they, they welcome this. And so let's let the Senate do their job and the House, excuse me, Intelligence Committees, and then report back to the American people. The, the thing that's been pointing out is they're changing the narrative. Trump said he had proof. Now they're saying they want an investigator to find out if it happened. Mm. So they're changing the story ever so slightly. Ever so slightly. Don't pay attention to this. Also, there's reports in the New York Times that Trump asked one of his advisors if he should hire some, maybe a private investigator, someone outside the government, to, uh, <laughs> to look into this issue. So, maybe his New York police officers. Could be. He has his own. I don't know if he's still using those guys. I oh, think I'm that, sure he is. You think so? He has his own <laughs> He has one. I think he, I think he does have one. All right. But, I mean, I think it's his right-hand man guy. Like, oh, okay. Uh, other news. Jewish schools and community centers came under a new wave of bomb threats on Monday and Tuesday. The threats were phoned into Jewish centers in at least eight states, as well as in Washington, D.C. and Toronto on Tuesday. Uh, the targets uh, for, uh, They targeted facilities. They were evacuated, searched, revealed no credible threats. Jewish centers have been a sharp spike in bomb threats and vandalism incidents in 2017. As of Monday... 
The Anti-Defamation League has reported 121 threats to centers in the U.S. and Canada since the beginning of the year. The world's most expensive SUV. Matt, are you still looking for a car? Uh, yeah, I am. Not, the, not an SUV, but maybe. This, this could what be is the it? option. Yeah. Mercedes Maybach G-Class 650 Land Lulette, or whatever Ooh. they're calling it. You'll need at least $500,000, so cash in the kids' uh, college funds. That's oh, probably boy. 500 grand. Uh, the ultra-high end SUV described by Road and Track as the ideal vehicle for the world's extravagant dictators was introduced at the Geneva Auto Show. Only 99 of them will ever be made, and while the final price tag hasn't been settled, it's expected to be the most expensive SUV ever produced. Fortune reports some of the features. Individual front and rear captain chairs wrapped in the finest calf leather and able to fully recline. So you're in full wow. sleep mode in this car. Hold there. on. Just, just the people not driving, right? Just well, the, I, yeah. I, I wouldn't recommend doing it while driving, yeah. but I believe the driver's chair can also recline oh, fully. The occupants are held gently in place on any terrain by inflatable air chambers, while heated massage programs take care of their tense muscles. Heaven. The, the electrically operated glass partition can be changed from transparent to opaque at the pri- uh, press of a button for privacy. Mm. And the retractable footrests are standard on all chairs, not the driver's chair, but you know the rest. And powered by a 621 horsepower V12 engine that can reach up to 150 miles per hour, but they govern it in a looking reach 112. <laughs> so, but you're still doing 112 while reclined on air cushions. Well, again, you're not supposed to. Do it while driving, but your passengers, yeah, they can hang out and go to sleep. Yeah. It looks really nice inside. You know, that's – I this, mean, and, I guess if you're in L.A. and you spend a lot of time in your car. The point – they're not going to be sold in the U.S., but oh. they figured, you know, there's some enterprising – You can import them, yeah. Billionaires will bring something in. But they, they're using the $500,000 vehicle yeah. to offset the research and development cost for the electric vehicles that they've developed. Okay. They've spent extra money, so they're going to put out this extreme value car and then use that money to pay off This the is debt. the combination of Maybach and Mercedes then. Yes. And, yeah, that, they're supposed to be – so they'll be coming out with some really cool uh, competitors to Tesla. Hopefully. Just, you know, they're just kind of cool cars to see. Well. As they zip through traffic. Hopefully they're not that expensive. Well, they probably will be. <laughs> they always are. They always are. Okay, cool. So – um Wow, a lot going on. And the question is, they've they've announced the the uh, the the new bill for healthcare. Yeah, and you'd think everybody would just be so excited about it. Nope, but they're struggling with it. Yes. Why? Why? Because too much of it looks like Obamacare. Yeah, it was, but Sean Spicer showed the difference. Right. The difference between Obamacare, which was like a foot tall stack of papers, well, yeah, the yeah, bill, yeah, yeah. and oh. and the new release was only hit. I mean, I was, theirs is just so much. It's just tiny. I was looking in Slate magazine. There's 60 pages. Yeah, right. You're talking about how thin, a, how thin the bill. It's a tiny little stack. 60 pages. Six of them. So 10 percent of the bill deals with if someone wins the lottery, how do we keep them from using Medicaid? <laughs> There's, and they went through, and I, they have a PDF on the website. You're going through, and yep, there's, they're all there talking is. about the lottery and winners and how they abuse the system. So, so the the lottery winners, what what is that like? One hundredth of one percent. Yeah, one millionth of one percent. But they can't get Medicaid. Oh, sure. <laughs> so these are some of the things that are coming out as people read this and try to figure out. They haven't announced how they're going to fund it. Right. 
uh, at least not publicly. They may have talked about it in meetings because uh, they have meetings and then people come out angry. So maybe they did talk about it. I don't know. But I'm sure all of the Republicans are on board. No. They're not. There's your Freedom Caucus. They're yeah. not loving it. Senator uh, Ted Cruz, Senator Mike Lee, there's a bunch of guys on that side. They they don't like it at all because it continues to expand Medicaid. Yeah. And they want to not approach that anymore. But the Democrats are pleased with it. They're kind of looking at it like, what's the difference? Because you're going to cover, uh, as the, the, the numbers come out, it looks like it's going to cover less people. Are we calling it Trump care? That's what the Democrats want to call it. The Republicans call it the Affordable Care Health Act or something. It's still like the AC. Yeah, AH. Of, yeah. yeah. So a, it's, yeah, it's AC, close yeah. to the ACA, but not right there. They no, he'll, he'll get his name in on that. But it'll be Trump cares. See, he didn't. He'll own it, but he didn't write it. This is no. Congress. Yeah. Well, if people like it, he'll own it. Well, but no, that's why he's but waiting. did Obama write his? Congress wrote it. He was but involved he, quite yeah. a bit. I mean, it was well. So is Trump. Trump's involved in everything. Well, this was written beforehand. This is Paul Ryan and no, Mitch McConnell pushing it, something forward. It came forward. out when Trump was president. Trump's going to come in. It's like everything else he's done. He's going to come in, put his name on it. But I don't know. I would that I would put my name on just. That's anything. why he's waiting to see if it's something that works. <laughs> Holy cow! Okay, well, so it doesn't go far enough for some. It goes too far for others. Can't please everyone. Can if you, you win the lottery, this isn't this, the, the the bill for you. How much do you have to win, though? I don't know. It didn't mm. really approach a threshold. Like, we're not said, talking like a scratch off. No, thing we're talking life, it's like life five dollars. Because what if it's like a, an office lotto? Then all of a sudden you're disqualified. Yeah, that's why we don't do them here. No, we want to keep Best you not in to do it. Yeah, Trump care. Six pages, uh, so about 10%. 10% of the bills about lottery winners and how they shouldn't use Medicaid. And and we wonder why we can't get anything done in Congress. <laughs> it's because of those darn lotteries. Yeah. It's a fun read. Okay. There is also they got rid of the mandate. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So which, now you're not ordered. You don't have so to. So if you don't have insurance, it used to be you had to be in or there was a penalty. That seems to cause a problem. Because now, the, now the mandate is gone. But you need numbers. So, But you need numbers to get people in. So it's like if you're in, great. If you want to leave, if you want to get out of the system, fine, go ahead. But if you come back in, there's a penalty. Yeah, but the problem is they need volume, right? They yes. need a ton of people to be in or you don't get all the benefits because it's just more – It's more. You need healthy, a good mix costly. of healthy age groups, sick, everybody. That's why they were mandating everybody in. Yeah. But that they're saying didn't work. But, they, but people don't like to be told what to do. No. So and, – and when they passed that, I was like, this isn't necessarily the best move. Now, now it is if you want to come in, we want you here. If you want to leave, great. But if you come back after leaving, there's a penalty. But there is some interesting news because it does mean that the Republicans realize that it wasn't so bad of a bill that they didn't want to use most of it. They just they, – they kept in a lot of things. Which is the problem. So I have mandates probably every two weeks. Are you saying those are, those are gone? I yeah, can't no, have those no, anymore? Going with your buddies out to like a movie, not, not what we're talking about. Those, so those I, mandates. I can, can still do that? You can do that. Okay, good. Yeah. Just it, don't play the lotto. I have found it entertaining for some reason when I'm doing my taxes when the screen comes up about your insurance. Yeah. And I yell at my wife. I go, here's the mandate. They're just, mandating just, us. Just, just skip it because, you know, fortunate to have jobs with insurance. Yeah. Luckily, luckily you're Move employed. Forward. Well, not me. Well, yeah. Sorry. Luckily, your wife's employed. Um, <laughs> yeah. You're court, you're court ordered to yeah, be I'm here. Yeah, court ordered. So yeah. Everyone else is. This is public service. 
It's uh, it's interesting. What a tangled web. Holy cow. I mean, it's almost like we, we didn't know how complicated this is. They can, they can lose – the Republicans can lose 22 members who won't vote for this and it still passes. 23? Eh. Paul Ryan says he'll have the 218 votes needed when this hits the floor. But it's – yeah. And then it's going to hit the fan. Yeah. yeah. If First it already the floor, has it. then the fan, then your pocketbook. Holy cow. Well, we will take a break, folks. When we come back, we're going to be talking about celebrity talk. Do they have the same rights as you and I, a celebrity, to get out there and you know share their political positions? Interesting, uh, interesting problem that uh, many face. They're tired of Hollywood talking down to them. But are there rights there? Stick with us, folks. Interesting discussion up next. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, the U.S. soccer uh, soccer has a new policy that requires players to stand respectfully during national anthems, requires players to do that. Colin Kaepernick, who uh, who made news last year by kneeling during the national anthem and being unwilling to stand for it, um, he now, too, is saying that he will reverse his approach and he will be standing for the national anthem this year. Um, even though, you know, last year he was protesting police violence and, and other uh, other issues. So one of the things, and we, we saw it in the Oscars, you know, uh, last month, 32 million people watched the Oscars, showing the great influence that celebrities have on society. Many people commenting about uh, Trump during that, um, during the Oscars and the award season. So should celebrities and other public figures so freely talk and be able to talk about their political views. For a lot of people, that's not what they want to hear. They just want to hear about the movie. They want to hear about the sport. But uh, it's an interesting question because there's a great need for celebrity power to move certain movements, right? We'll talk about the history of that. And yet there's also – their rights may be limited depending on who they work for. Uh, here to speak to us about celebrities and their rights to talk about politics and other public issues is Shantavia Johnson. She's a professor of law at Drake University Law School, and uh, we're honored to have you here. Shantavia, thank you for your time. Thank you, Matt, for having me on. I appreciate it. This is, I, I think, there's just a lot of, uh, especially recently, and, and President Trump is kind of a lightning rod and makes it easy to have everybody jump on the bandwagon. But I, I've heard over and over, and a lot of it started back with Colin Kaepernick from the 49ers protesting police violence and um, and Black Lives Matter. Uh, to what degree do celebrities have the right to to speak so publicly about their views? Right. So we so we typically think celebrities have significant rights to do this. They have these platforms, they have access to resources, and typically, not just celebrities, but we all kind of assume here in the United States, we have this broad right to free speech. Right. But uh, just you know, what history shows and what research shows is that really the First Amendment only applies in specific circumstances 
And we've kind of taken the First Amendment, you know, free speech, and kind of changed it into this kind of broad right to say whatever we want. Hmm. But that's really not what the law allows, whether you're a celebrity or a law professor or yeah. whoever you are. So, so we, like, we know we can't yell fire in a theater. That's not free speech. <laughs> That'll get us in trouble. Um, but what, where, are, where are some of the limits on free speech and, and, and where are we maybe going too far? Yeah, so the, the, the First Amendment right to free speech comes from the Constitution, right? And essentially, the language from the Constitution only allows freedom of expression without government interference when we talk about free speech. So, so to the extent the government might interfere with your right to say something, that's really all the First Amendment hmm. allows. So, and it's not just the federal government. It also could be state governments. And local governments, it's basically a restriction on how the government can limit a person's speech. Oh, interesting. But it doesn't apply to private companies. Yeah, so, so the, like the NFL, mentioned. can they can limit the speech of their players. Oh, definitely. And they do all the time. And from things like standing, so you mentioned uh, the soccer teams now, soccer players have to stand. Yeah. Um, to the NFL specifically saying you can't wear like pink in honor of a breast cancer survivor unless it's within certain rules. So private companies can create all kinds of restrictions, and they do. That's interesting. So maybe some of the debate with President Trump is, you know, where he's calling for people to not speak. Um, I mean, some of that might be simply because he does represent the government. So he doesn't have a good case to make. But the, the the average citizen does. Yeah, so with President Trump, I think President Trump is fascinating for many reasons. But he's walking kind of the, the most blurry part of the line yeah. in terms of whether he's speaking in his own capacity as a person or whether he's speaking on behalf of the federal government. A lot of this happens on Twitter. So what does it mean if it's on Twitter? But but I do think it's a dangerous line when we start to hear our high-level government officials saying people should or should not be allowed to say specific things. Right. You you um, brought up a really, I think, important point, and you gave a really essential history. I mean, historically, celebrities using their power, wielding their power and their voice, it, it has led to some pretty um, – strong support and movement in social movements. Talk about the history of celebrities using their voice. Right. So literally since the inception of the United States, we have used celebrity voices. More than 200 years ago, George Washington in 1780 used what we called America's first celebrity, who was a French aristocrat named Marquis de Lafayette, he used Marquis to ask French officials for more support for the Continental Army. Hmm. And Marquis was a celebrity. He traveled to America. The press at that time was known for being um, really harsh to people in the press. And when he came over, it was kind of like the equivalent of live tweeting <laughs> of celebrities travel today. They, they reported on each day of his visit for more than a year, which uh, was fascinating really to see because in the history of America, even at that time, we had not really seen that type of positive press revolving around maybe America's first celebrity. Uh, And even though that was the first time, it's happened consistently over time. In the early 1900s, 
the National Women's Suffrage Association used actresses mm. to bring attention to women's rights movements in the 60s with the civil rights movement. Your listeners may remember Sammy Davis Jr., who yeah. was a black comedian. He refused to perform in Miami and Vegas until venues became integrated, and he led to integration in those places. There were others, Jackie Robinson, Muhammad Ali, Ossie Davis, and Ruby D. Dick Gregory. And so we have a long history in this country of using celebrities to push the needle forward in a lot of ways. And you mentioned the Oscars. I mean, we see now with the Grammys, with the Oscars, yeah. so many celebrities using that platform to push certain agendas. It's, um, and it again, it seems to have frustrate 50% of the country. And the, right. the other fifty percent seem to love it, um, but then there there too tends to be the weird, um, I don't know, kind of the the energy behind it, and the to the the level to which we think somebody is informed. Colin Kaepernick uh, kneels all last season, but now that he's a free agent, um, many are arguing now he's going to stand because he needs a job, mm-hmm. and um, so there is a right. weird there's a weird control where. Um, and I guess Hollywood's okay with it because because and everyone's behind it. It's, it must not the, this uh, this activism doesn't seem to be hurting Hollywood or or Kaepernick until he needs a job again. Then it seems like he'll go with the flow. Right. So there certainly has been a lot of criticism with Kaepernick in particular over you know he was the one who really kind of started this movement and started this broader conversation. Yeah. And I don't know that he's publicly said, here's why I'm no longer kneeling, but I think it is clear he's continuing other campaigns. So whether it's the Know Your Rights campaign or whether it's donating money to social justice organizations or I think I read in the news recently he donated money to a health clinic at Standing Rock. He's still Mm. working in the social justice arena, but just not in that way. Though, understandably, you know, it raises some eyebrows when this person who's been such a staunch kind of advocate in this way is, oh yeah, I'm a free agent next year. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not kneeling anymore. Yeah. I, I. I. don't know. You know exactly the thought process, but it's certainly. You know, it, it's interesting to see these things happen. And they do move the needle. I guess that's the point. Is that they, their influence, and maybe not every. Not. I mean, if a Kardashian comes out on an issue, I'm not sure the power that has versus an Oprah. But when Oprah comes out for President Obama, it moves the needle. Oh, definitely. I mean, there's been early research indicating that maybe her endorsement of him when he was running for the Democratic nomination has really catapulted him into that specific position. Though, to your point about and of the nature of the celebrity, the thing I find the most fascinating is oftentimes it depends on the age of the the people involved. So there's research showing a measurable connection between celebrity opinion and Generation Y, which is people born between the 80s and 90s. And those people, like in the political spectrum, those are people now who are maybe most engaged in mm. a lot of things that are happening in this country. Right. And so who the who the celebrity is may make a difference. And you're right. I, mean, I think some people hear the Kardashian name and they think, oh, well, <laughs> their opinion that, doesn't matter so yeah. much to me. But there are probably millions of people. But to the millennial. Yeah, right. Whatever. 
Mm. Right. That's exactly right. Though, and to the to the same point, in the 80s, Charlton Heston right. was very popular for debating various national policy, whether it's national defense policy or right-wing Nicaraguan militant groups. He would debate people on those issues, and I think he did have an impact in kind of the broader society about one thing or another. Well, and it's interesting when you go to the the GOP and and the and the Democratic National um, Committee or their their uh, conferences, and you see the, mm-hmm. the celebrities they wheel out and they bring wheel out sounds bad, but maybe on the GOP side <laughs> they bring out a Charlton Heston. They bring they bring out a, a different almost type of celebrity than the Democrats do. What what do you sense is mm-hmm. the difference? Um, and, and is that what leads to the antagonism between this whole conflict with using celebrities or not, is the Republicans don't seem to have as many? Well, you know, I, I think that's part of it. And what I wish we saw more of is not just Democrats doing one thing and Republicans doing another. Right. But maybe going back to the 80s where there was a Charlton Heston on one side of the debate and a Paul Newman on the other side of the, the debate actually having discussion. I mean, we like to kind of think of celebrities perhaps as not being well-informed, but many of them are. You bet. And many of them can can really you know, open our eyes to think differently about things. And to your point about perhaps there not being as many celebrities on one side or the other, and I guess what I would say to that is regardless of the person speaking, whether it's a celebrity or not, I think their ability to communicate positions can make a difference. Mm. And celebrity brings another level of access and platform. But but I do think that, you know, using a celebrity gets more eyeballs. Whether those eyeballs, you know, turn into you know, people thinking differently about issues, really, I think, in most instances, revolves around what they're saying. You bet. And I hope that continues. I hope it's not just Kim Kardashian tweets, <laughs> I support X. <laughs> right. People go out and vote for that person. Yeah, but you, it leads to, you know, more research. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, and some, yeah, some, and a deeper insight into even understanding both sides of the argument. Uh, this is great, Shantavia. Let's take a break, come back, and continue the discussion more when we come back about celebrities and their voice. Um, Are they oversharing? Do they have rights to share? They do. The government only protects. I mean, First Amendment is about protecting us from the government interfering with our speech. What happens when, you know, it starts to cost the money to the NFL or to the to the uh, supporting uh, entities that are paying the bill? Can they then shut down a celebrity speech? Stick with us. Interesting discussion up next. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we are talking about celebrity freedom of speech, basically, and their their tendency, their rights to uh, say what they feel about what's going on politically. You, you hear a lot of it, or you heard a lot of it uh, during these award ceremonies over the last few months, a lot of talk about President Trump. Um, do they have the right uh, and 
do the companies, the organizations have the right to shut them out, to edit it? Um, and then what rights do you have as you listen to it? Joining us to walk us through this uh, complex yet um, important discussion is Shantavia Johnson. Shantavia is a professor of law at Drake University Law School. Her academic specialties include intellectual property, entrepreneurship, property, and entertainment law. Shantavia, thanks for being with us. Thanks again for having me, Matt. This... Um, so what you're saying is the First Amendment really is applies in certain circumstances basically to ensure the government doesn't interfere with a person's right to speech and to speak, but private entities um, can. That is exactly right, and we see that happen a lot. Whether So about 14 years ago, the Dixie Chicks – I don't know if you remember yeah, the Dixie oh, yeah. Chicks were in London – they said they were ashamed that the president of the United States, who was George W. Bush at the time, was from Texas, and they received huge backlash. The, the country music industry essentially shut them out for years. They wouldn't play their music on the radio. Mm. They, wouldn't, they no longer charted on the country music charts. Uh, the blogs and talk shows vilified them as unpatriotic. And that happened a lot. And private entities can do that, whether it's the Dixie Chicks in 2003 or today that Milo Yiannopoulos yeah. had a book deal with Simon & Schuster. He got in the hot water about some remarks related to pedophilia, pedophilia, and they canceled his book deal. After initially saying a couple months before, we promote free speech. <laughs> we want to give people the right to say you know, whatever they like, essentially. Right. But not if it's pedophilia. <laughs> you can't talk about that. So, I mean, in reality, it's, I mean, many would look at that as just market economy, right? And so if if you're going to impact our bottom line and this is going to cost mm-hmm. us, I mean, some are even saying the NFL ratings were dropping because the athletes were kneeling. Um, and it, mm-hmm. nobody can say that for sure, but the NFL ratings were down ten or twelve, I think, percent last year. And um, but if it's if it's a financial issue, then really it's in the best interest of the celebrity to not to to make sure this is worth the fight because there's a financial that's, cost. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And a company can use its economic power to whether it's limit speech or punish speech, that kind of sounds un-American because we right. think that we have this strong right to free speech. But again, the, free, the, the First Amendment right to free speech really only limits the government's ability to suppress speech, not other people, not private companies. And a business is a business. It's about making money. And to the extent we're not doing that, uh, businesses can and do limit what employees can say. And so as I've written about this a little, really, for a celebrity, we don't necessarily start with the First Amendment. We start with what contracts have you signed? True. What endorsement deals do you have? And what are you limited in doing from those contracts, not from the First Amendment? That's interesting. Yeah. So then it's just, I guess, contract law. It's contract law. I mean, there's some other state-related laws, but about half the state, maybe 31, maybe a little more than half, um, don't have a lot of protection for off-duty speech, for example. Things you say when you're not necessarily at work or not necessarily doing whatever you're doing for your endorsement for your contract. But I, I, I guess, too, in the end, 
you can see how complicated this gets. A celebrity says something because they believe strongly in it and it, let's say to support mm-hmm. a social issue. Um, the company, ba- you know, uh, stops their speech and, and inhibits their speech. It then gets out that the company's inhibiting the speech and then people, uh, you know, fight against the company, which then puts pressure on yeah. the company. So everybody's using their speech against each other's speech. That's exactly So right. it sounds like America's working, right? It's working. <laughs> it's, you know, it's working in some ways. So I do think at some point we go a little too far. So there were a lot of celebrities, for example, during the inauguration season when, when President Trump was being inaugurated, who were very upset that certain entertainers said, I'm going to perform at the inauguration. Right. There was a singer named Chrisette Michelle who was one of those. She didn't even endorse Donald Trump. She just said, I'm going to perform at inauguration. And she faced significant backlash. And that's happened a lot, right? So there have been CEOs in Silicon Valley. Uber has been at the receiving end of not just corporate backlash, but public backlash from those of us who spend money. Right, well, and, and remember when President Trump invited tech giant guru leaders to come in and they sat at a table with him. That's right. They received backlash like, how dare I'm going to pull my stock because you're going to go meet with the sitting president of the United States. That's exactly right. The same happened with the presidents of historically black colleges and universities who went to Ex- sit down with the president exactly. and have a meeting with him. And, and- Ke- Kellyanne Conway. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so on the one hand, you know, I get it. I understand. We all, as you pointed out, we all, you know, want to be will- want to be able to express our opinions, put our dollars where we think they should go. But at some point, I think we start to quell the, the ability to have discussion with each other. Hmm. And it, again, then you reminded us of the history of this. There's movements that that couldn't take place without some celebrity push and some help. And so it really it, – it almost seems like it's kind of – you know, notoriety becomes a, a very almost um, sacred responsibility to have followers. And there's there's some people that seem to really manage it, you know, almost like – almost – I don't know, with with a sense of sacredness to it. And it seems like there's others that are just throwing their notoriety around. That is exactly right. I think we have gotten to a place in our country where you're right. Some people take their platform and they push forward things that they believe in, things that they feel really strongly about. Others just want a photo op. And still others don't care one way or the other. So there are some celebrities who won't talk about these things at all when perhaps they're in a unique position to do so. And I think probably one of the best examples of people using their platforms in a very powerful way was in the 60s with the civil rights movement, which we talked about a little bit already. Actors who were making lots of money at the time and had significant access They put their jobs on the line a lot of times to plan and attend rallies, to perform and organize fundraising efforts, to work to open doors for other people of color in the entertainment industry. And they did so sometimes to their own personal detriment. 
And, you know, they were instrumental in the success of the Civil Rights Act, in the passage of the Civil Rights Act and the Civil Rights Movement. Do you... um do you sense, uh, and we'll we'll be wrapping up soon. Do you sense that with a kind of an entertainer president, that we may have opened up a Pandora's box for celebrities now to even be more political? I think we de- we definitely have, and and in ways that maybe many of us didn't anticipate. So Donald Trump is a business person and a celebrity. Like we would think that would lead to more celebrity supporting another celebrity. Uh, we would think that would lead to maybe greater access to the First Amendment. But we've seen in some instances where Donald Trump says you shouldn't be able to say certain things. So when uh, the vice president, then he was the soon-to-be vice president, went to Broadway, and the cast of Hamilton had some words for Mike Pence. Donald Trump tweeted about it and said, you should not be allowed to do this. You should not be allowed to say these kinds <laughs> of things. And so we have you know, a, a very delicate balance that's taking place. And not just with celebrities. I mean, with social media, anybody can be a celebrity, right? Right, anybody absolutely. And so now, like, even our concept of celebrity has changed. I have younger sisters. They talk about these YouTube sensations who I've never heard of, (laughs) but who are probably, you know, making millions of dollars and have significant influence. So this works for all of us, and this impacts all of us in significant ways. Yeah. No, I totally agree. Shantavia, appreciate your time. Thank you so much for your insights and your great work there at uh, Drake University Law School. Um, Professor Shantavia Johnson helping us through this uh, whole concept of celebrity talk. By the way, remember, we all have rights, uh, but the, re- the real freedom of speech is that the government won't oppress your speech. It doesn't mean you don't have other responsibilities to your employers, to, your, to even, you know, the other things you represent in your world and in your life. When you speak, think of everybody that you might be representing, even unintentionally. And also think of who's listening and what's their point of view interesting rights. We'll be back, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Up next, McKenna Bowes. So it's going to do a little mind-bending. Stick with us. Give it up now for the House of Bowes. Welcome to her house. She is McKenna Bowes. She is here to break down things you didn't know now. McKenna Bowes is in the house. We call her the mind bender. She's here to uh, just stretch our brains a bit. Let us think different thoughts that maybe we didn't know before or think before. We A lot of times we have an opinion and we don't know why we have the opinion. Mm-hmm. So you you sometimes can you know give us other options. Uh, you're going to talk today and not because it's International Women's Day, but but it is. It's, it's sort of because of that. I, yeah. it, it, it's, it's vaguely it's a, related. It's a great topic. Uh, can men and women be friends? What do you think? Gut feeling, what do you generally go with? Well, I, I think, honestly, I think men and women can be friendly. Mm-hmm. And I think we could even, I would term it a friend. But if I'm married, it, I don't know the propriety of me going to lunch and hanging out with a best friend girl, mm-hmm. female, that I'm telling all my secrets to. Yeah. 
That so to me, it's more about propriety of marriage. And where's that line? Yeah, and where's the line? But I guess for singles, it's a different world. Yeah, I mean. Personally, I have a lot of friends who are guys and generally I'm a big believer in the yes, guys I, and girls can be friends. I t- now, I think you can especially be friends if one of you doesn't want something more. Yeah. Yeah, that definitely helps. Then I have to – because if, if, if we're not going to go be more than friends, then I just hate you. So yeah. we're not friends anymore. Don't be friends with people That may not that. be as mature as you need to be. <laughs> so what are you learning? What did you read? Well – you know, a lot of times the people who do claim that men and women can't be friends turn to attraction yeah. as the reason. Once you know, we're it attracted. Gets, it gets messy. Yeah. Somebody always ends up liking somebody else. This is the Harry meet Sally, right? Argument. Yeah, exactly. Um, but it turns out there may be a much – just a totally different reason what? why it's hard for men and women to be friends. And it has nothing to do with attraction. It has nothing to do with attraction. Does it have anything to do with love languages like men are from Mars, women are from Venus? So it has to do with communication okay. and what it takes for women to feel connected to a friend versus men oh, and excellent. how we prioritize friendship. Yes. Okay. Go, go. So women tend to have – their best friends, they view them as something between a sister and a soulmate. You know, it's yeah. they tend to have very deep emotional connections to people they consider their good friends. And when distance or things get busy, anything that just causes them to spend less time together, in order for them to maintain that same feeling of friendship, they have to put a lot of work in. They'll make phone calls and chat with their girlfriends or like Uh, say, hey, we're going to go get lunch. Lots of touches. A lot of contact. For guys, first of all, they tend to have fewer of those like really close, deep, intimate friends Mm -hmm. and tend to have more wide varieties of just people they hang out with, much more casual Mm -hmm. friendships. Like you have the game friends you go to the game with, you have the... Eating friends that you like to go eat with. You have just different types of friends. Yeah, and you might share some things with some of them, but you don't necessarily confide everything in all of them. Yeah, Which is a big difference in how men and women approach friendship. So what happens is when a guy gets busy or gets a new job or gets a girlfriend, moves somewhere else, he's not going to put the same amount of time into maintaining that friendship. Uh. As a woman would. Yeah. Not because he doesn't care about the person, right. but because that's just not right. how generally he functions. And so the woman will be trying to say, hey, let's meet up. Let's do these things. And ends up feeling neglected because it's not reciprocated, right. which pushes that yeah. divide even yeah. farther apart. I agree. And eventually sort of destroys these relationships. Because for guys, it's always, well, there's always another buddy I can do things with. Mm-hmm. But for girls, there is that deep emotional connection. And, and, and the connection takes – you can't just pick it up every 10 years. Exactly. I mean that doesn't mean you can't have friends that way, but you're running on old energy, not new energy. Yeah. And then you know the, the extra attention that the girl may be putting into it just because that's how she deals with her friendships with her girlfriends may be misinterpreted then as – too much, you know, sort of, why is yeah. she being so clingy? And so when she's not, it's just a miscommunication and that can then be misinterpreted as the attraction issue coming right. in and that's where some of these other theories well, tend to be prevalent. But so you from. add that complexity, you add other communication differences and then you add a little attraction oh, you throw in a one-sided in way and, and it's, a, it's a train wreck. Wow, McKenna, that's good. See, you just, you just, you made us think. There we go. Bouse in the house. Thanks, McKenna. Great insights. 
Every day we get to a chance to have McKenna stretch our thinking. Look at Jeff was totally quiet. He's still trying to figure out about that attraction thing. <laughs> Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back. The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1 855 Chat BYU. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. This is the program where we do what we can to give you the latest and greatest information. To help your your life, your love, and your relationships, and also just your leadership skills, your ability to influence and impact others. Today, no exception, happy International Women's Day. International Women's Day. It uh, originally was called International Working Women's Day. It's celebrated on March 8th. Every year it commemorates a movement for women's rights. And uh, weren't many talking about maybe having uh, women today not work so yes, that they would then show everybody... It's called the day without women. And it would be the day that the world would shut down. Yeah. No, well... What do you mean, no? There's like three school districts. I can't remember where, but three school districts have called this a day off because so many teachers were asking for the, days off, the day off. Really? So they just used a snow day or something. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, I love that, except I just worry about the poor kids... Whose mothers actually have to go yeah. to work. Well, no. If their mothers are doing it right, the mothers are going to refrain from mothering. The fathers are supposed to step in and but take over there. Many homes don't have fathers. Well, yeah. That'd be assuming there's a father there. Yeah. Too bad for you. Yeah. Well, you know. It's Women's Day. Sorry. It's Kids are all alone that day. We, we, honestly, where would you be without your mother? Yeah. I'll tell you, you wouldn't be here. That's why this would be better on a Saturday. Why? Because then you could go... Well, they really give them all the day off. For a large portion of people, work isn't a situation at that point. That's why the, the protests that happened with the Women's March yeah. so a month ago yeah. were better because it was on Saturday and there's a lot of people that could be able to get out there. I can hear somebody say, well, that's what Mother's Day is for, but this isn't Mother's. This is Women's Day. Right. Well, they're women too, right? Right. But, so why couldn't – but not all women are mothers. No, but some so are. So we would celebrate Mother's Day on Mother's Day, and they're, they're, International Women's Day, and then there would have to be an International Man Day. Yeah, it's Father's Day. Well, no, that's Father's. Yeah. Well, that's – and Father's Day will be a, a message to other men to step up. Uh, Jeff's pulled up the, the famous Treat Your Mother Right song. Uh. From apparently the 70s? 80s. Uh, by, M- no, Mr. No, no. by Mr. T. Okay, it's Mr. T. I was like, what is this? Yeah. One of the great, I think, one of the great musicians of the 80s. Right, Mr. T. And it's not easy to sing with all that jewelry around your neck. Yeah. To be honest, this is what Rocky Three was missing. Had he performed no, a musical a scene, it would have been a lot better. <laughs> Absolutely. Holy cow. So happy International Women's Day. Um, we've got a lot to cover today. We've got an update on Shik Shumway. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. Shik uh, is our, our wonderful, well, he's our roving reporter. He's more roving than reporter. And many times um, he's kind of a day late, a dollar short. Sometimes he's too early for things. Mm. 
yesterday we talked about an accident and um, th- and he actually – we didn't know this at the time when we told the story yesterday, but Schick was involved in the accident. Oh. And he's in the hospital. So we are going to go to his bedside and have a little conversation with Mr. Schick Shumway. All right. So we'll do that in a few minutes. Also, we're going to be talking with a neuroscientist about trust. And you, it's pretty – this is an amazing story because we know you need to trust people. But did you know that a really high percentage of trust is chemistry? It's biochemistry. So we trust people when they do certain things and it creates a reaction inside of us with oxytocin and it actually makes us trust people. When a mother breastfeeds her baby, it builds – it creates oxytocin release and that bonds the baby and the, and the mother together. It's a weird thing. And apparently this oxytocin is involved in trust at work. It's involved in trust when you feel it, when you don't, and it impacts your bottom line. It's pretty cool research that we'll be talking uh, with Paul Zach about. We'll get to that in a minute as well, plus a little uh, tangent later in the show on millennials from Leanna Tan. But first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? Influential conservative groups on Tuesday announced their opposition to the American Health Care Act, the House GOP Obamacare replacement. Heritage Action, the activist arm of the powerful D.C.-based Heritage Foundation, dubbed the replacement bad politics and bad policy. In a letter to GOP leaders, Representative for Americans for Prosperity and Freedom Partners called the plan Obamacare 2.0. The Club for Growth also came out against the American Health Care Act, dubbing it Ryan Care after House Speaker Paul Ryan. Additionally, the Tea Party Patriots accused the GOP of not keeping its promises to the voters to do a full repeal of the Affordable Care Act. The right-leaning American Enterprise Institute told the New York Times that 10 to 15 million people would lose their health insurance over the next 10 years under this plan. President Trump called the plan wonderful on Twitter. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell was asked, how are they going to pay for this bill? How are you telling your members that this bill will be paid for? Well, it just got launched yesterday. But isn't that pretty integral? I mean, if you don't pay for the plan with taxes, what are the alternatives? As I said, we'll be looking at the whole proposal here. We'll have ample time to answer all the questions. Lots of confidence there. How are you going to pay for this, basically? Hey, uh, we just put the bill out. I mean, uh, we got to read it first. We Hold haven't on. even thought about this yet. <laughs> so Mexico's uh, going to pay for it. Yeah, that's what it is. It'll be wall tax. Uh, FBI Director James Comey and former acting U.S. Attorney General Sally Yates are among the initial witnesses invited to testify before the first House hearing on Russian meddling in the U.S. election. According to a list released Tuesday by the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, the opening hearing, set to begin Monday, March 20th, mark your calendars, will feature Comey, Yates, or if you remember, uh, Sally Yates was the uh, acting attorney general who warned the White House prior to her firing that oh, National yeah. Secretary Advisor Michael Flynn had not been forthright about his conversations with Russia. Then they fired her. Uh, NSA Director Mike Rogers, former CIA Director John Brennan, former Director of National Intelligence James Clapper. Clap and, on. And two executives from CrowdStrike, a cybersecurity firm that uncovered proof of Russia's hacking of the DNC during the 2016 election. So that should be fun TV. Yeah. More hearings. It's great. Hack TV. Three people are dead after a bus and a train collided in Biloxi, Mississippi, officials said Tuesday evening. The bus, which was carrying up to 60 people, was crossing a Biloxi train track when it became stuck. While the bus driver attempted to reverse off the tracks, the bus was struck by a freight train. 35 passengers were hospitalized, seven of whom have critical injuries. None of the train's crew was injured. Biloxi authorities are investigating how the bus became trapped 
on the train tracks. Uh, the pictures of that are uh, yeah. scary. And finally, we're watching more video than ever before, apparently, but not on TV. Right. Don't so even a, need those big screens anymore. Consumer Technology Association study shows that video viewership has increased more than 30% over the past five years to 16 hours a week. But almost half of that video viewing is being done on other devi- devices other than your TV. So smartphone, laptops, stuff that catches fire. You're fired. That nearly 50-50 split represents a dramatic change from just four years ago when consumers viewed TV 62% of the time. Video desktop video viewership has declined by fifty percent over from twenty twelve. For the first time, more people are using streaming services for content than paid TV. Around one third of customers say that mobile video viewing quality isn't great. Most publishers and advertisers are still creating horizontal video products with desktop and TV viewership in mind instead of optimizing their content for smartphones. Isn't that funny? We got all this HD technology. Where you can you can see the pores of the actors. Sometimes it's gross. Yes. It's seriously gross. And now though, we're all like, eh, I'm just going to watch it on this little thing that I can barely put in my hand, and you don't see the pores anymore. Right. Well, unless you watch local TV news. But you know what's great is now you can watch TV while you're driving. <laughs> so that makes it more fun. Have you seen people do that? I've done it. You've done it. Mm-hmm. You've seen people reading books though, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, a book's not going to kill you. It's not like no, watching the, TV. the impact will. That's the impact at the end it's of the It's the book. impact at 70 miles an hour. That'll kill you. Hey, uh, great news. Hmm. You know, I, I, I get so frustrated with these people that go to college and then drop out for whatever reason. Because, you know, they're just – they're not going to ever be successful. So I was so happy when, when I heard that Mark Zuckerberg – is going to go back and, and, and get his degree. He's going to finally go back to Harvard. He's speaking. Yeah, he's the inaugural address. Is this a one of those fake degrees that you get when you show it, up? And it is give you not the, a fake degree. Sort of the friendly doctorate. But he drops out as a sophomore. Slacker. Slacker. And his, I mean, can you imagine what his mother's been going through for 13 years? Right. What like, does she tell her friends? Like, yeah. what bragging rights does she have? What does your son do? <sighs> he dropped out of Harvard. Loser. Had a lawsuit. Mm-hmm. <sighs> anyway, the 32-year-old billionaire, also the CEO of Facebook, is going to... Uh, and now he's just ripping off Snapchat. That's all he's been doing for the last couple of months. Yeah. That's all he's... He's just shaking and down even, Snapchat. And he's putting some of it into Facebook, some of it into Instagram. He's kind of spreading it around, but everyone can see it. Yeah, we know what he's doing. But, you know, if he had just finished Harvard, he he wouldn't be making these mistakes. How many mistakes has he made? Come on. Actually, quite a few. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) He's now going to go receive an honorary degree. Now, normally you receive an honorary doctorate, but maybe he's just going to receive an honorary bachelorette. I mean, bachelor degree. Yeah. Not a bachelorette. That's something else. It's a horrible show. I was watching that show. Why? Uh, My wife was watching it, and then I just— Your relationship expert self-reported— And these are are fake relationships. Are they fake? I believe so. Well, looking – judging the type of breakdown that these people (laughs) were having as they didn't get a rose, it seems pretty real to them. I think they're more looking at like future career options and how it's just been ruined. Do you remember (laughs) that show, Who Wants to Marry a Millionaire? Oh, yeah. Do you remember that was like crazy? Yeah, that marriage lasted about five minutes. Yep. Yeah. That's – we did this for the show. 
Well, a friend in the millions. Well, bless you. Um, anyway, so who wants to be a millionaire? Bachelorette. Mm. Zuckerberg gets an honorary degree. That's the news. The news you didn't even know need to know about. We got to check in with our good friend Shik Shumway. I'm I'm really sad. Yesterday we told okay? the story of uh, a car, a teenager. Uh, that drove accidentally. He mistake. He mistook the uh, gas for the accelerator. Hit the accelerator. I mean, mistake the brake for the accelerator. Floored it. Drove off the side of a building. Fell seven stories. Crashed into the roof of a hardware store. It was a bad day. He's he's okay. He's in the hospital. But on the scene was Shik Shumway, one of our great reporters. He. Why was he there, Jeff? By the way. I don't think we we know. I, I think that's part of the reason why we want to talk to him now, just to get some more details on what happened, why he was even there in the first place. He was seriously in injured. Yeah. And he so he's on the phone now. He joins us via telephone from Bright Morning Hospital in hospital to shed some more light on this bizarre accident. Shik, how are you holding up, my friend? Ah, sounds like you've been better. Uh, but, you know, you, you got to be the luckiest man in the world right now, Shik. I'm pretty sure the accident should have killed you, right? I'm 100% sure you should be dead. Shik, what? Shik, what were you even doing on the roof anyway? What, what, what were you doing up there? Okay. Well, you said a mouthful there, my friend. Uh, we're going to let you go, Shik. It sounds like you uh, you need some time to recover still. And it sounds like the meds are on board. So we're going to let you go, my friend. Uh, our prayers are with you, Shik. Okay. Hmm. Sounded like he still had a sense of humor, though. Yeah. That, I mean, I, you know, he, I've heard that joke before, but it, you know, it's been a while. It's different, you know, it's different when you're. Law when your jaw is, um, you know, loss of motor function. Yeah, yeah when it's not working. <laughs> he made it sound like they pieced it back together with Legos. Mm. Yeah, I don't so think it's kind of a new procedure. I, yeah, I think it was like an erector set, is what he was calling it. Yeah, for some, I don't. Those know. can be pretty. If strong. you don't know Schick, that's hard to understand. But he seems to be doing okay, all things considered. It's it's really the same old Schick. Yeah, it's just this might have been one of his better reports. Honestly, the most accurate, I'd say. Right. Most information. Yeah. It was from the heart. Yeah. Again, Shik Shumway is our roving reporter with emphasis on roving, not reporting. Well, we we miss you, man. We miss you. Hey, uh, an Ontario man denied a $10,002 jackpot over casino self-exclusion rule. Listen to this. An Ontario man was shocked when he recently won more than $10,000 at a casino, only to be told he wasn't eligible to collect the winnings. John Mirando, 82, recently thought he had met uh, a run of great luck when he won a jackpot while playing a slot machine at the Mohawk racetrack outside of Milton, Ontario. When he won the $10,002, he was taken in a room, told that he couldn't have the jackpot and escorted off the property. 17 years ago, when he felt he was spending too much ga- uh, time gambling, he signed a form to self-exclude himself from gaming facilities. 
Mirando said as the years passed, he forgot about the form. Last September, Ontario Lottery and Gaming introduced a new rule intended to help problem gamblers. As part of our support of the self-excluders' commitment to stop gambling, self-excluded individuals are not permitted to win prizes. Any jackpot over $10,000 is reviewed. OLG said because Mirando is still considered self-excluded, he cannot collect on the money. So this is the only instance in which someone wished they won less money. Yeah. $3 less. $3 less. Wouldn't have even been evaluated. But isn't it funny that they'll still let him gamble. They just won't exclude him from – they exclude him from the winnings. You can still give us your money. Give us all the money you want. They just won't give you any back. That's like robbery. You know? It's just robbery. And that, I guess what they were doing is just playing the odds, right? No, but they're they're the ones they they're saving him. Yeah, they're the they're the knights in shining armor here. Sure, they may have his money. Yeah, but now he has his dignity. Eighty-two <laughs> year old man, can you imagine what he could have done with his winnings? I mean, he's he's easily put more than ten thousand two dollars into the game. You don't sign a document like that unless you have. That's a good point. Always remember when you sign a document 17 years or earlier. Always think that through. I, I'd, I'd take a picture of it. I'd probably have a copy of it with me. Well, you know, karma. I guess it's going to – it eventually gets everybody, doesn't it? Crazy. We're going to take a break, my friends. When we come back, we're going to be talking about trust, how you grow trust, build trust, and the chemistry behind it. Interesting science ahead in relationships. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you love – and lead healthier lives. Stick with us. For decades, alarms have sounded about declining engagement in employees in a, in the, across the United States. Yet companies continue to struggle with toxic cultures, low productivity, and unhappiness that all are associated with that uh, lower engagement. Why is it so difficult to improve our, our company's culture? What makes so many good employees check out of their workplace even while still sitting in their seats? Neuroscientist and author Paul Zak has a new book, Trust Factor, which shows the innate brain functions and the, the insights that it holds and the questions that can be answered by neuroscience and trust. Uh, Paul Zak, thank you for being with us today. Good morning, Matt. This is such an interesting topic to me. You, you bring up the fact that um, trust is, is a major issue, but trust really is a biochemical issue more than maybe anything else. It is. My lab discovered about 15 years ago that a chemical in the brain called oxytocin signals when someone around us appears to be trustworthy and motivates us to work on their behalf. And gosh, that sounds like a great workplace. Right. right? So I somehow have to not just say I, that I'm trustworthy or show you I'm trustworthy, but we also have to make sure that the chemistry is firing. That's right. I mean, there's all kinds of discussions about workplace culture. It's a big topic. And I'm not sure how to measure culture, but I do know how to measure trust. So <laughs> we spent eight years measuring brain activity while people worked to identify the building blocks that leaders could affect that impact a culture of trust. I love it. And I mean, when you you spent eight years basically fine tuning measurements on how to actually measure trust, um, then out of this, you were able to come up with these eight factors. Give us give us just a little a quick overview of how you were able to get to a metric for trust. 
Right. So, first of all, I'm a, I'm a nerd, and so, you know, companies came to my lab door saying, we think trust is important. And I said, great, we have this uh, assay in blood. I could take blood from your employees, you know, and the, and the executive would turn white and go, no, you can't do that. <laughs> um, although a couple companies did, uh, including, as I discussed in the book, some great companies like Herman Miller and Zappos, let us measure productivity and take blood from their employees and, and measure their uh, productivity. We found these eight building blocks, and the, the impact here is that the neuroscience tells leaders precisely how to uh, influence these building blocks to get the biggest impact on brain and behavior. So concrete example, um, one, of the, one of the eight components that builds trust is recognizing high performers. And so listeners will go, geez, you know, I learned that, I think, first week in business school. Right, duh. People. But the science says recognition will have a bigger impact on performance when it's close in time to when a goal is met, when it comes from peers, when it's public, when it's unexpected, when it's tangible, when it's personal. Right? So there's all these ways I can now start tweaking my employee recognition program to really set the uh, community standard that we value the highest performers. We recognize them as members, important members of our community, and here's the way we want to build aspirations for everybody else. So it really is dialing it in. So then as a as a boss, I could, for example, know that recognition of my people in in personal, tangible, immediate, more immediate ways, that we know correlates to more oxytocin push, I guess, in the brain, which would create more of a, a, a mutual trust. Exactly right. So all these factors uh, allow uh, colleagues at work to induce oxytocin release in each other. That increases our sense of connection and empathy, and as I said earlier, makes us want to work to help each other. So now we're effective team members, and we're like, uh, you know, like a jazz band. I know what you need, you know what I need. We're working really effectively. We're being challenged. We're growing. We're not being blamed if we make mistakes. So one way to think about this is that really everybody at work is a volunteer, right? So yeah. you could volunteer your time to work somewhere else. Now you get paid, but you don't get paid to put extraordinary effort in. So pay is a very weak motivator. So how would I create a culture where a bunch of people would love to volunteer to work on this, this uh, organization's goals? And that requires high level of trust between these colleagues. And so when we look at the other numbers um, that like the Gallup organizations talk about engagement and how many disengaged employees there are, so is a lot of that just simply they're not getting this chemical push and connection to their company? Is, is that why they disengage? That's part of it. I, I think part of it is this hangover we have from the 19th century that work is a drag. Work provides disutility, and I have to pay you to do this terrible thing. But we know that many, many places where we work, in fact, probably you and I, Matt, we love what we do, actually. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a lot of times I think, man, I can't believe they're paying me to do this. This <laughs> is awesome. Um, so how do we create those workplaces where work is an adventure, work is a challenge, work is a journey? And, um, and that culture has got to be one that has high purpose, you got to know why you're doing this, how it's improving the world, how it's improving customers' lives, and one where you trust your team members. They're reliable. They're working hard. They're not perfect, but you know, we hold them accountable to do what they say they do and create an environment where they can really you know, rock the world. This oxytocin metric that you use, I mean, it's, it's really as it's, – it's the most, it seems like, base universal emotion or a chemical – to connection that exists. This is the mother-child breastfeeding connection, right? It is, but it turns out we're releasing it all the time. It's the only way we can be around strangers, people we don't know well, is to have some signal in our brain saying, yeah, Matt, looks like a good guy. I want to hang out with him. 
and uh, Terry, your producer, a very sketchy guy. I <laughs> totally. Know You've yeah. heard? So, so if we can tweak the system, it's like a brain hack, right? So if I can create a culture where I'm caring for the people around me, I'm performing well, I'm trying my best, I'm innovating, I'm not being screamed at if I make a mistake, well, that's a place where I'm looking forward to being with these people. And we're social creatures. We want to be in groups, and we also need leaders. So if we can create this environment where you know, it really is fun, not every second of the day, of course, but you know, the, the leverage from a high-trust culture on business performance is enormous. Mm, totally. And um, walk us through. Walk us through some of these, these key indicators uh, that, are, that do correlate to trust and, and what, we can be, what we can bring, how we can bring them into our organizations. Perfect. So we did, a, uh, in 2016, a nationally representative sample of U.S. working adults. And we showed that uh, individuals who work in high-trust organizations compared to those who are in low-trust organizations uh, are substantially more engaged at work. They're over 100% uh, more energy at work, 56% more satisfied with the work. They innovate at faster rate. And some stuff I like, too, is they're actually lives outside of work are better. So we mm-hmm. find these people who work in high-trust organizations take 13% fewer sick days. They are 29% more satisfied with their lives outside of work. So we have these really objective indicators that when I'm in a workplace that values me, that trusts me, um, my physiologic stress is lower, my performance is higher, so the employee's better off, uh, the organization performs better, and we're actually strengthening societies. Right? If you're in a place that's just beating you down every day, do you get home from work and are you a good parent? No, spouse? no. No, but the people who have a reasonable work-life integration, who are doing important stuff with people they trust, their lives are much better. So I think this is really hitting the triple bottom line. Yeah. Paul, could you see in your research, does it matter? I mean, it seems like certain jobs have the luxury of um, even more passion than other jobs, uh, less mundane, less routine, less painful in a way, less exhausting. Does it matter where you are in the chain, uh, or, or can you do, do these numbers play out at any level? That's a great question. Yeah, it doesn't matter industry, and it actually doesn't matter on level. We check that. It doesn't matter on gender, regional location. Hmm. Although more high-trust uh, companies in the southern U.S., which is interesting. We could talk about that a bit. But I think it takes a, a change in the way we perceive people at work, again, as a volunteer. So here's a, another example. A hospital we worked at was doing a turnaround. Hospitals are, are barely profitable in many cases. And they started, the CEO started by talking to the cleaning staff. And he said to them, you are the first line of infection control. Many people in a hospital die from hospital-acquired infections. And when you do your job, you're part of the healing team. So change the focus. Put everyone on the same page. Why are hmm. we here? We're here to actually make extraordinary experiences for our clients, for our customers, and for our community. So once we think about it like that, we think, oh, yeah, everyone's valuable. Yeah. And and all of a sudden, they're the front line. They're just as important as the surgeon. And um, I guess I guess that right there shows respect. It shows you're included and you're part of the solution. And interestingly, they might even be a bigger part of the solution. Absolutely. And they should be listened to because they have so much great on-the-ground information that the guys in the penthouse don't have. So a lot of suggestions on how to create this high-trust culture in the book. You know, spend time on the front lines. Uh, you know, wear an open collar, relax, talk to people, use your first name, and avoid things like uh, what are called dominance displays. You don't need to walk in in a $2,000 suit to your meeting. You don't need to sit at the head of the table. Mm. 
if you're a leader, you want to be an information aggregator, and you can only do that if you're part of the team, not if you're a omniscient God sitting above everybody else. So true. Oh, my heavens. This is great stuff, Paul. Um, let's take a break and come back, and then you can start uh, giving us some of the uh, the actual tools, the skills we can use to to create a high-performance company based on science now, um, the things that actually trigger the oxytocin and other chemicals as well. We're learning from Paul Zak. You can go to his website, pauljzak.com, and learn more about his book, Trust Factor, The Science of Creating High-Performance Companies. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us is Paul Zak. He's the author of the book Trust Factor, The Science of Creating High-Performance Companies. Paul has spent more than two decades of research that have uh, taken him from the Pentagon to Fortune 50 boardrooms to the rainforests in Papua, Papua New, New Guinea. And he is, as a neuroscientist, he understands human connection, human happiness, and effective teamwork. His book, Trust Factor, is... Um, is is about this chemistry that goes off in our brain, the oxytocin, that uh, signals this sense of trust, this trustworthiness. And he's teaching us that through his research over the last eight years, he's been able to now identify very specific factors that uh, correlate to that chemical firing. Is that is that right? Am I up to date with you, Paul? Exactly right, Matt. Right. And then, again, identifying these factors that leaders can affect. So knowing what they are and knowing what to do with them are different uh, things. So the, the book has a lot of case studies of companies that either I've worked with or intuitively have discovered, you know, how to affect some of these factors. And the turnarounds you see in these companies where you go, okay, we're going to put the employees first. We want to empower you. We want to give you the tools to be successful. Um, yeah, go run with it. And, boy, within six months, 12 months, these places are humming. Well, and because you're not... I mean, everybody. I've heard. I've had. We've had so many authors on the show about trust, but I think you're the first one that's actually researching the chemical side that I've ever heard. I think everyone else is citing you, Paul. They're all talking about your research, but in the end, um, if if we hit on the right factors, the factors themselves are what produce the trust. You you don't even have to have major interventions and training programs. It doesn't sound like you just need to, for example, recognize excellence. In certain ways. Well, you do, but I think, you know, culture is something that has to be lived. True. you got to get so it into the culture. If we can measure trust in an organization, then you can just constantly improve it and tweak it. So keep it alive. Um, and the neuroscience makes this other interesting prediction, which we, have, we see in the data, which is people who work in high-trust, high-purpose cultures will actually enjoy their jobs more than people live in, who work in one of the two only. So... Um, these are places like uh, the U.S. military or uh, police departments uh, or, um, again, Zappos, where, you know, I get what I'm doing. I'm really trying to make people happy. I'm trying to make a great experience for you, and I'm given the tools to do that, the resources, the teamwork. Um, so here's something that listeners can do, which is you can reverse engineer this process. So yeah. we use this question to assess joy at work, which is, on a typical day, how much do you enjoy your job from 1 to 5? And if that thing is in the 4 to 5 range you got a pretty good culture. Not to say you couldn't improve it. If it's below four, you got to start thinking about either improving trust or 
making sure people understand the purpose of your organization. Why do you exist at all? Why are people paying you for anything? Such a great question. And, I mean, that's, that's a scary question to ask. Cause, it but, is. But, but it opens hand, everything up. I understand it. Yeah. Um, I talk in the book about um, McKinsey, which started a program getting stories of its consultants who did extraordinary things and putting them online. You know, this is some amazing thing that we did that really improved the world, maybe on a small scale, but sometimes on a big scale. Uh, the Iran hostage crisis in, the, in the 1979, they were behind the scenes with the negotiations. Well, that's super cool, trying to get 100 Americans home from Iran. Hey, we should know about that if we're a company. Right. Uh, another, another suggestion you make is um, these companies and that, that create this chemistry is, is I guess, a, a challenge or stress. Create and induce more challenges for your employees. Healthy That's challenges. Right. So what we call challenge stress, this short-term, limited, very concrete endpoint stress, is really good. And I hate to tell you, but your brain is a lazy organ. It doesn't want to burn energy. It doesn't need to. So when we put these challenges in at work, then we're motivated to form teams. We're motivated to trust people around us. And we actually perform better. And then the brain is just like a muscle. I want to stress it. And then, you know, roll back and give you a week to go home early, catch up on email, and then stress you again. Hmm. And, uh, yeah, it can be really good and really fun for you to do that. And you can see if we if we had a high-trust culture, that stress would gather us together. We'd work together. We'd pull through it. And then, you, I guess, you circle back, and we recognize your successes. Exactly right. Celebrate the victory. Talk about how we did it. Do a debrief. So we, we learn about best practices every time we do a job by having these, these celebrations. And then, yeah, take a breath and then do it again. And so if we could have this kind of constant challenge world where, again, I have a team I can trust, I have uh, resources, I have a leader who's coaching me. It's very much like a, a um, servant leader model. So the, the leader here really is, is in service to the people around him or her and is working hard to coach them to be successful. Mm. You, uh, you also talk about an, another metric is or another uh, variable to, to focus on is giving people choice, discretion over their work, which is so counter to the, you know, the industrial movement of so many years. It is. And we find when people have uh, discretion over how they execute a project and even more generally on what projects they work on, like the time they work, where they're working from, they get greater buy-in because now I'm controlling my own life. So in psychology, this is called locus of, con- of control. When I control my life, like maybe I like to work from 11 p.m. at night until uh, 6 in the morning. Mm-hmm. If that works for me and my projects are getting done, why do we care? Right. So a bunch of companies, recently a Virgin Group, have gotten rid of vacation days. They don't care about how many days you take from vacation, how many days you work. Just get your projects done. And if you want to work from the beach in uh, San Diego and your projects are being, being done, what do I care? And, and then I save all that money on accounting for Oh, okay, Matt was out for two days last month, and right. one more day left, and just get rid of all that crap paperwork and say, you know what, you're an adult, do the job. If you like the job, do the job, you'll do it because you're passionate about it, not because, and we'll pay you fairly, Yeah, we don't have to incentivize, you have to, you know, dangle a, a little wad of bills to make you do work, you should be into it. Well, and, and so many people then kind of have the golden handcuffs where I've got, well, I've got to stay, I mean, I've got 30 days of vacation days a year, and... So, but they're not staying because they're passionate and they have trust. They're staying because of a benefit. Right. And that's the point is companies are catching on to this, that, oh, actually, I can manage culture for high engagement and high performance. 
So now where are you going to go? Are you going to go to a place that's keeping you in the golden cage, or are you going to go to a place that says, you know what, Matt, you're a pro. You know what you're doing. You've been trained. Go do it. And if you need help, you get stuck, let me know. I'm your supervisor. Great. We'll talk about milestones. Um, so one of the things we find in these high-trust cultures when you have a lot of coaching is you actually can get rid of the backward-looking annual review. Hmm. Because I'm giving you feedback all the time. Right. So we created something called the whole person review, where once a year I'm going to sit down with you and talk about where do you want to go? What, what's the next job you want to get? What kind of professional development do you want? What's your personal development like? How's your family life? How's your spouse? Are they happy? And then lastly, what I call spiritual development. Besides work and family, what else do you love to do? What, what, what feeds your life? What feeds your soul? What makes, what makes you a better human being? Let's, let's talk about whether you have time to do that. And maybe that's volunteering in your kid's school or, or uh, run marathons. If one of those three components is not working well, believe me, you're not going to be a great employee. And again, the company will pay. Yeah, and you know, it costs about 100% annual salary to replace somebody, and yet we're in this mindset where, oh, there's just plenty of people, and they have to have jobs, so they're going to work here (laughs) no matter whether they like it or not. No, actually, there's there's a coming labor shortage, and certainly there's a shortage of the most talented people. I want those talented people to work for me. Let's create this environment where they want to volunteer for the cool projects, the cool place, the great benefits, and the great people around them. Does this – it sounds like it would be great to work with high performers that are – I learned a quote uh, years ago as a consultant that superior performance fosters independence of action. So the, the, the better performer you are, it seems to be the more freedom you'll have because you can push on the system. But does this work with people that historically are underperforming? Um, does this – I guess this lifts them as well. That's a great question. So um, yes and no. I mean, there are some underperformers who are just disengaged. It's a bad fit. But again, if I'm coaching you, I'm giving you goals and milestones, and after three months, four months, you're not making it, we try to remediate that. And we say, look, Matt, you know, we thought this was a great job for you, a great fit. It's not working out. So as long as you're not a complete slacker, you know, stealing from the company, I'll use my network and and help you find a different job. We've got to move you out because this isn't good. Mm. Because some people fit hand, systems better, right? They like cultures that don't require as much accountability or that are pretty, you know, systemic and not changing constantly. Right, and and that's fine, but I don't want them in my, in my right, workplace. Right, right. But normally, because we're group creatures, we do this culture change. All of a sudden, people are more engaged. There's energy. It's amazing. I have a story in the book of working at a company in the Midwest, consulting with them, and walking through an empty building full of cobwebs, going to my meeting. And you're like, oh, that's depressing. And this company, old line company, doing consulting work, and within six months, this culture change, the energy was high. They got rid of the cube farm. People are feeling energetic. They're talking to each other. So the changes aren't expensive, and the return on investment is quite high of creating a place where, yeah, people are energetic. They're passionate. They love what they're doing. Cube farm. Huh? Like a bunch yeah, of a cube farm. like so a we're, petri you know, we're dish. Social creatures, so we it's have true. to uh, talk about research in the book we did on open workspaces. And you think open workspace is noisy, there's distractions, but actually people they only perform better objectively, but they shed the stress of work more rapidly when they're around other human beings huh. because we can measure that with neuroscience. Right. And so yeah, you're turning off faster because you're in this group of people who are your support group. Versus a bunch of cattle being prepared, you know, like veal in a dark cage. For the slaughter. 
water. To right. be consumed. Yeah. Oh, that's sad. Uh, another uh, point, and I guess we'll wrap it up on this one, is, and I guess two of them maybe together, openness. You know, show your hand more. Be more open about the data so everyone knows and be vulnerable. Yeah, which sounds like the craziest thing for a leader. But it right. turns out many sites have shown if I ask for help as opposed to depend, <clears throat> excuse me, demand you to do something, people are much more willing to follow up. And, in fact, imperfection in leadership is quite appealing. So we know this. If you're leading an organization, again, you're not a little god. You're just trying to do your best. So if you're going to be an information aggregator, if you're getting information in, you need to put information out, too. So you reduce the stress of work. You can let people focus on task and performance if you tell them not only where the company's going, but why it's going there. So include them in that decision-making process. Hey, you know what? Here's something we're going to do. It's a new initiative. This is why we're doing it. We think it's going to be awesome for you guys. If it's not, we'll know that within a couple of months, and we'll roll it back. So I think just being honest that it's a whole set of experiments. No one really knows what's best. So let's just keep trying and let's keep pivoting and keep everybody in the loop. That's powerful. Um, I, uh, we appreciate your time, Paul. Thank you so much for your insight. And just as somebody that works with relationships every day and even building corporate culture as well, uh, it's good to have some research behind some of these ideas. Dr. Paul J. Zach is his name. Trust Factor, The Science of Creating High-Performance Companies is the book that he wrote. You can go to his website, pauljzak.com, pauljzak.com to uh, continue your learning. We'll take a break, my friends. When we come back, Leanna Tan will be doing a little tangent on millennials. Stick with us. Millennials is a term that usually refers to people born between 1980 and 2000. This generation is sometimes thought of as obsessed with electronics, convinced they are special and full of entitlement and narcissism. Producer Leanna Tan is tired of the stereotypes and tries to find common ground with the older generations by building on shared experience. I am a millennial. What's a millennial, you may ask? Well, if you Google it, you may get a bunch of degrading and condescending terms. They think John Stewart should be president. Written by the older folk of the world. Participation trophies. It seems like everyone thinks that we were born yesterday. And they're so lazy. That all we know is advanced technology and immediate results. Our parents and leaders tend to feel like there is this huge generational difference between us. But they forget. Millennials are old school, too. We weren't born with smartphones in our hands or computer formulas in our brains. We've lived through a developing process of technology just like our parents. So just to remind the older folk just how old school we are, I brought in a few of my millennial friends to reminisce about life as far back as we can remember. What are some things that you remember from childhood that would seem like prehistoric now? For example, I remember life before internet. We didn't always have it, right? And so you'd go to the library and you'd try to search the catalog and it would like come up with green letters and be like... Doo, 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 doo. I totally remember that. Yeah, okay. That just reminded me of something that died. Hollywood Video and Blockbuster. Mm. Welcome to Blockbuster Video. Yeah. Blockbuster Video. VHS tape. When you would stick a pencil in there to have to rewind it. <laughs> the fact that you had to rewind it after you were done with the movie? Yeah, exactly. My freshman year, we had a phone plugged into the wall in our apartment, and we used it. The last year that they had landline phones in the dormitories. 
Yeah, so that brings up a question. What was life like before cell phones? When my family moved to Utah, we had two cars and we used walkie-talkies to communicate between the cars. Nice. <laughs> yeah, um, before cell phones, I'd actually had a lot of uh, free time on my hands. Hang out with friends, play outside. Read a book. Uh, not really, but. <laughs> <laughs> what was your first cell phone? So back then, um, when cell phones came out, they started having like the chocolates and the razors. That was my era. Yeah. So I had the block phone where it's this, the flip phone. Yeah. And you could um, open it up sideways and have like a keyboard. Your first cell phone was somewhat advanced. My first cell phone was also a flip phone, but it had like an antenna on it. Oh, yeah. Wow. Same with mine. I'm pretty sure I could use my first cell phone to like break through a window. It's like a Nokia and it looked like a brick. But if you press the button and flip open, it was cool. I kind of wonder if I still have the muscle memory for like I typing. I miss how indestructible they were. I remember that you would know people's phone numbers. That's true. That is true. <laughs> the only phone numbers I remember still are the ones I memorized before getting a cell phone what was life like before google maps Silence. your dad would stop at like a gas station he'd bring up that massive map that's like a unfold four by two yeah Yeah. four by two and just (laughs) unfolds it on the hood that was like my image of adulthood it's like being able to read a map it looks so hard Okay, what about floppy disks? Oh, yeah. When I was in first grade, my school still had Apple IIs. Apples from like the early 80s, pre-Macintosh. And they ran off the floppy disks that were like actually floppy. And we would play number munchers on it. Do you remember remember the old Gateway computers, though, that had like the cow logo? Gateway computers feature Intel Pentium processors. Yeah. 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 (laughs) I remember cassette tapes I would have a karaoke machine and I would like put cassette tape in there and I used to pretend I had a radio show back then and look at me now <laughs> wow you come, you've come so far do you guys remember uh, like Discmans and Walkmans mm. oh yeah how those were a thing for like three years and then they came out with mp3s but like those years when you had a Discman you were like the coolest kid in school did you guys ever, like, jury-rig a way to, like, put a TV in your car on road trips? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, we used to do that. We had a Suburban, and so we'd, like, bungee cord a TV between the front two seats. <laughs> that way our parents didn't have to deal with whatever we were watching but in the back. And, you know, so we'd put on some nonsense. And it wasn't a flat screen. It was oh, like no. a CRT. It was, like it a, was CRT. a big, it was yeah. a big <laughs> brick. And you'd stick a VHS in it. Plug it into, like, oh, the, yeah. the cigarette lighter. Like, what kind of things do you guys miss? Or maybe not even miss, but just remember from, like, elementary or something. I remember those, like, pencil sharpeners you have to crank. Now everyone has mechanical pencils. Or just types on their iPad. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Oh, yeah. What TV shows did you watch when you were in elementary school? That's a good question. Rocket Power? Franklin? The Turtle? Little Bear? Jackie Chan Adventures. Yes. I love that. When I was in elementary school, they had the golden age. They had Bill Nye the Science Guy. Bill Nye the Science Guy. Bill Nye. Magic School Bus and Kratz Creatures and Wishbone. We're at Reading Rainbow. A Reading Rainbow. When I was pre-elementary school, they had Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. It's such a good feeling. Dude, it's always good in the hood. I really enjoyed the kind of simplicity of my childhood. Bring back the simplicity of childhood. All right, well, now that we all feel old, thanks for reminiscing with me. We always have things to talk about, don't we? All right, so we don't know how to read a map or dial a phone number that's not already in our contacts list. But we can relate to you on the traumatic memories of that dial-up tone and the horrors of using that printer paper you had to tear the whole punches off before turning it in. (sighs) Well, happy reminiscing, everyone. 
I'm Leanna Tan, and that's my little tangent. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Top of the morning to you. Boy, oh boy. Actually, bottom of the morning, really. Got a great show for you. Today we're lining them up. It is International Women's Day. Thank you. Thank you. They're not clapping for you. It's here all day, ladies and gentlemen. They love International Women's Day. Uh, this is the day we, we celebrate women worldwide and their impact on the markets, the economies, on the businesses, not to mention families, you know children of the world. Happy International Women's Day. Uh, I think Jeff was going to run out and get a cake, if I'm not mistaken. Did you get that cake, Jeffrey? Um, I was going to ask McKenna to do that. Oh. You're going to ask McKenna, the woman on International Women's Day, to go get her own cake? <sighs> your, your mom never made you bake your own cake for your own birthday? No. Oh. No. Nope. Kind of rude, it seems like. We'll uh, we'll be still we'll still we'll celebrate it some way somehow. Today, also, um, by the way, we're going to be talking about exoplanets, which Terry and I talk about all the time. Sure, right? No, not really. Uh, we're going to be talking with a physicist. Uh, oh, this is the music in space. This is space music. Yeah. Uh, this usually means that we're going to be speaking with uh, Mo Pluto, Maurice Pluto. The dwarf planet. Don't say that. Sorry. He has a complex now. Yeah. But instead, we're going to be talking with a BYU professor, um, and he's going he's gonna to walk us through what the discovery of seven exoplanets means to all of us. Seven exoplanets, 40 million light years away, I think it was. 39. But, you know, give or take a light year. <laughs> give or take a light year yeah. here or there. It's, uh, it, I mean, it means, oh, not 40 million, just 40 light years away. I mean, it's close. So we're going to find out what that means, why we should – because it, it blew away a ton of people. They just can't believe it. They're, they also have fairly uh, uh, you know, temperate climates. So there could be water there. Hmm. It could preserve life. This could be something really big. We're going to find out how soon we'll be going there. Should <laughs> I buy a suit? Right. Should you pack now? And what it means. To me, this is, this is huge news. So we'll find out what the news actually means. We'll get to that. Also be visiting our good brethren from BYU Sports Nation. Find out what they're doing. Um, I'm, I believe Spencer will be around. I think uh, Jerem was headed to uh, spring ball. Um, you know, just a fun little thing he gets to do. But uh, we'll talk to them. Also, of course, a hero of the day. Plus some empty news. Matt Townsend news. Some news that uh, you didn't even know you needed to know. But uh, we're going to give it to you anyway. And one of the things we, we're gonna, we will have to talk about is if you have a highway traffic jam and you no one's moving, hmm. can I just suggest you better pray that there's food trucks around 
because this happened and a guy opened his taco truck in the middle of a traffic jam. Bada boom, bada bing. The tacos started flying and the money started rolling in. Record sales. Record sales. It may be something of the future, like an exoplanet. Stick with us on those. We'll uh, come back. But first, let's do the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? The House is moving forward with an investigation into Russia's alleged attempts to tamper with the U.S. election, scheduling a first public hearing for the matter for March 20th. Intelligence Committee Chairman Devin Nunez announced FBI Director James Comey, National Security Agency Director Mike Rogers, and others have been invited to testify, according to CNN. On the Senate side, Intelligence Committee Chairman Richard Byrd told CNN Tuesday that he was not ruling out the possibility his panel would also look into Trump's allegations. Both also commented saying they have not found any evidence of wiretapping yet. 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 Uh, Secretary of Health and Human Services Tom Price on Tuesday told reporters that the Republican health care bill is a, quote, work in progress, distancing the White House from every com- uh, controversial aspect of the proposal. When asked whether the administration supports everything that's in the bill sitting on the table, Price replied, this is a work in progress. We'll work with the House and the Senate. As you know, it's a legislative process that occurs. As he was saying that, as it says, kind of distancing the White House, Trump was tweeting it was a wonderful bill that we fully support. So a little messaging issue yeah. going on still there. Former President Barack Obama is, quote, livid with the, with anger. Can oh you be boy. livid and be happy or be not angry? Uh, yeah. Seems a little redundant. Yeah, yeah. About President Trump's latest accusations of wiretapping and hasn't returned the new commander-in-chief's phone calls since the inauguration, according to a new report out of the Wall Street Journal. Presidential historian Douglas Brinkley said the apparent fraught relationship is a break with tradition. There are these kinds of things that would have happened in the past, but nothing to the degree where a sitting president would charge his predecessor with a felony. It creates a feeling of instability in the United States, says Brinkley. Mm. Attorneys for the state of Hawaii said that in court filings on Wednesday, they will seek a temporary restraining order against President Trump's revised executive order on travel from six Muslim-majority countries. The lead attorney in Hawaii told CNN the new ban suffers from the same constitutional and statutory defects as the previous executive order. Hawaii is asking the judge that it requests be heard before the new executive order goes into effect March 16th. Wow. So the fight is not over. The fight continues. Thank you, Hawaii, I guess. Um, And finally, a Russian lawmaker has proposed an unorthodox solution to the country's problem with soccer hooliganism ahead of next year's World Cup. What? Legalize it and make it a spectator sport. Oh, legalize hooliganism. Hooliganism. Like, you know, taking your shirt off. Riding on it, screaming, fighting, riding, yeah. yeah. So it says, organized groups of Russian fans, many with martial arts training, fought English fans on the streets of Marseille during last year's European Championships. There's videos on YouTube. I found them greatly entertaining. Here's some video. The English fans went out there like, we're going to fight. Then Russians started just... You know, did the martial arts, and then the English fans are running away. It's like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> People are crazy. <laughs> what is this? That inspired the uh, Igor Lesbedev, who sits in the Russian parliament, to draw up rules for what he calls draka, the Russian word for fight. Twenty. So they're just going to call it fight. So if you're going to fight, you got to fight by these rules. 20 fighters on each side, unarmed, in an arena. Wow. Would this take place before the game? Like, would this be I the tailgating party? It will be a separate event. Interesting. And he says in a statement on the website for the nationalist LDPR party, so it would be like if the Republicans were backing this, he said organized brawls could turn fans' aggression in a peaceful direction. He also claimed it would serve as an example for English fans who he characterized as undisciplined louts and poor fighters. 
Ooh, them is fighting words. He said Russia would be a pioneer in a new sport. Uh, he also suggests fighting between different fan groups could draw crowds of thousands. English fans arrive, for example, and start picking fights, and they get the answer. Challenge accepted. <laughs> a meeting in a stadium and a set time. Have you ever tried fighting without your arms? It is tricky. It's really tricky. <clears throat> then it's just more like kicking. Not as fun, especially if you're not good at it. The Russians were the same people that did the medieval fighting, weren't they? Um, it was in Eastern Europe. What I don't is know it, if it about? They, they just love the fight. It says here some fan groups in Russia already hold illicit fights along similar lines, typically prearranged mass brawls in rural locations away from police. Wow. So this would just it's legalize It's like Fight them. Club. Yeah, but you're not supposed to talk about it. But maybe what this is is because if this works with hooliganism, would it work with demonstrations? So then we could take political parties and instead of having demonstrations that you know turn into violence, yeah. you just break them into their groups of 20 and you hold an event. He also – They fight each other. The same hmm. uh, Russian legislature got into trouble during those fights in Marseille during the European championships because um, – what he hailed the violence uh, last year by telling Russian fans, well done, lads, keep it up. Keep the violence going, gentlemen. Stand, stand up <laughs> for the country. Yeah. Holy cow. So legalizing hooliganism. Well, and Make it a sport yeah. that we can all watch. And while we're at it, you could – so the violent side of hooliganism, you know, that's the brawling. But there's a – there's hooliganism in – Tailgating parties. Yeah. So then you could have cooking shows. You could have cook-offs. Yeah, there's a whole network You here. could do ribs. Reality dating shows. Yeah. yeah. Chili cook-off between go. rival groups. You can do like a kid chef. Yeah. Hooliganism. Uh-huh. <laughs> it never ends. But it's got to be shirtless. It's really dark. Yeah. Yeah, you could do like body painting mm. paint-offs where you just get four pasty white male chests and whoever can paint those pasty white chests the best wins. It's a great idea. What's happening to this world? Well, I'll give you I'll give you an idea. Apparently, if you live in Indiana in the in any area, I guess served by Indiana radio stations, hmm. you may be under this weird impression that there are zombies out there. Ooh. The Randolph County Sheriff's Department is assuring residents there is no zombie outbreak in the area. So empty news, we want to bring you this news. There's no zombies reported in America. I mean, there's, there's some that you can't tell. But the department says the radio station WZZY 98.3 fell victim to hackers who got into the system and issued alerts about zombie attacks, disease outbreak, and deceased bodies, people dying all over town. There's no local emergency, the department said on Facebook. We have contacted the radio station, notified the Indiana Department of Homeland Security. Again, there is no emergency or disease outbreak in Randolph County. An investigation is underway as to how the hackers gained access to alert the system. Well, isn't that what they'd want you to think? Carl left the door open on his lunch break. It's always Carl. It's always Carl. And uh, Or he clicked on that email. But... Do you believe that they, when they say there's not an outbreak, how do you know? Would they tell you if there was? Right. With the zombie, like if there was a zombie apocalypse, like but, anyone's gonna say I did it. It's not real. Zombies no. could live among us, and we might not know. They no. act just like totally. you and me. 
I when I walk in and see you guys in the morning, I I feel like there's a zombie apocalypse. You were struggling yesterday morning. Actually, you, I think that was you. Was it? Mm-hmm. And I struggle every morning. But yeah, yesterday you looked you looked zombie. Oh yeah, I was on medicine, cold medicine, of course. Um, okay, so Indiana, you're safe. Randolph County, relax, relax. Anybody that you think is a zombie is just having a very, very bad day. We told you about a taco truck that became stranded in a massive Seattle traffic jam, and it came to the rescue of hungry drivers by opening up and serving lunch on the interstate. A tanker truck carrying propane rolled over on the uh, Seattle's Interstate 5 on Monday morning, shutting area roads for about eight hours amid concerns about hazardous material spills. While waiting in the jam, uh, Rachel McQuaid tells the Seattle Times she spotted someone walking back to her car uh, with a to-go box of food. Mm. She says that she headed over to the Tacos El Tajin, Tajin, Tajin in Spanish, truck herself and ordered two steak and two chicken tacos for herself and her husband. El Tajin uh, owner, Thomas Lopez, tells the newspaper that he and employees are ready to serve food everywhere. Wow. So that's very generous. They were just giving food to these. Oh, no, no. They were charging. Ready to serve. I knew it was too good to be true. The weird thing is they were actually heating the meat over the propane fire. Really? Of the the propane truck. Hmm. But you know what? Why waste your own propane when you got a whole propane tank right there? Right. Just burning away. That's really – that's pretty enterprising. That's smart. Who – who hasn't been stuck on a freeway for hours and you're thinking, I need a taco? I need a taco now. Yeah. And then what they needed after the tacos truck was probably like porta potties. Bring out the porta potties, the honey buckets. Especially if it's you're gonna be El there for Tajin. <laughs> no offense. Because you're really – but not – with whatever, if you're sitting on the side of the road, where are the porta potty porta potty trucks, right? They need to just come out automatically. And then you charge five, ten dollars a – well, don't those self-driving cars also come installed with one? No. Oh. No. They, they do a lot, though. What about one of those 99 SUVs that are being manufactured? Those oh, have got to really, have oh, a toilet. The, the Mercedes Maybach. You know those yeah. got to have one. Yeah. Half a million dollars. No, no toilets there. There better be one for that price. You know, there's just some things you don't want in the car. You know what I mean? You're there to drive, for heaven's sakes. So uh, congratulations to Tacos El Tajin. Way to go. Um, by the way, these storms are crazy. You, you, uh, we heard of tornadoes in Missouri. We hear of flooding in many states. We have snow. But the minute it heats up, we're going to have flooding in the Rocky Mountain area. Um, apparently, the storm runoff in California, in California's gold country, is uh, it's exposing a new mother load. Weeks of rainy weather across North Cali- Northern California, and the storm runoff through the hills of gold country have triggered a new gold rush. Miner Gary Thomas said he's always finds at least a little gold here on his property near Jamestown in Tuolum County. But uh, this year, there's been much more runoff than normal, and it's shaking the gold from these here hills. Thomas said it could provide a eureka moment for those inclined to come up here and look for it, The known gold digs were washed out, trees uprooted, and landscape eroded. The runoffs have also removed gold out of the old abandoned mines and sent it downriver 
Thomas said one hot spot this year will be below the Oroville Dam because the huge water releases from spillways could reveal some new pockets of gold. There's gold in their mines. <laughs> you know, good. I, I, my hat is off to this miner. I mean, how many young people are going out there looking for gold? Right. It's it's kind of a, you know it's kind of a it's a dead art science. I mean, I have two miners at home, and no, they don't do any of that. No, but you're you. They're not talking miners underage. They're talking miners digging dirt and getting the metals out of the dirt. Miners. It's a minor detail. Yeah, it is. Okay, we'll take a break, folks. When we come back, we're talking exoplanets. We're going to find out what the discovery of seven new uh, Earth-sized planets orbiting a star 40 light years away. What does it all mean? Why is everybody just freaking out? Interesting, uh, interesting insights up next. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends. You know, just when we thought we knew uh, so much about what's going on out there in space, astronomers found at least seven Earth-sized planets orbiting the same star 40 light years away. The findings were also announced at a news conference at NASA headquarters in Washington. So what does all of this mean? And, and you know, what what do we need to understand? They're calling these exoplanets, but, uh, you know, we don't know an exoplanet from an uh, exoskeleton. We don't know. So we brought in a pro, uh, Dr. Uh, Darren Ragazine, assistant professor of physics here at BYU. He's here to discuss exoplanets and what this new discovery means to all of us. Darren, thanks for being with us. You're welcome. This is uh, for an astrophysicist. This is the this is a big deal. Yeah, it was a pretty big discovery. Why? Um, so probably the main thing about this discovery is that these are planets that are closer than the planets that we usually find. So I guess getting into what is an yeah. exoplanet and yeah. an exoskeleton. Um, so um, the stars are just like our sun. They're exactly like our sun. And so they have planets just like our sun has planets. And those planets are called exoplanets because they're outside of our outside. solar system. Outside, okay. And so we've been discovering exoplanets now for about two decades um, and uh, recently have discovered, you know, as our technology improves, as we've launched space probes, uh, we've been able to, to study them in more detail. Um, and so we have systems with with planets kind of like this one. Uh, this one is uh, neat because it's close. It's around a brighter star, so we can get more information about it. There's more light, I guess. Mm-hmm. Is that yeah. it? Um, well, astronomers, I mean, our whole life is focused on light because yeah. that's it. That's, that's all, all you get. got. Um, unlike a chemist who, oh, I can rerun the experiment. We get the light and that's it. Interesting. Um, and so um, we really try to work on understanding exactly what can the light tell us. Um, and getting more light's a big deal for us. And these are so there's seven planets, and I guess what makes them special too is they're around a they're around a, a star, but they're, there's a bright star. They're about Earth size, is that's that right? right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. then they they have temperate climate, we believe. Well, so all we can tell is. We can measure how far away they are from their star, and we know we've been studying stars for a long time. We understand stars really well. This particular star is very dim, a thousand times dimmer than the sun. Hmm. And so um, what that means is that just like, you know, if I had, you know, a raging fire, you would want to stand further away. But if I had a candle to get warm, you would get really close. 
So these planets – and it's – the other thing to understand about this is it's easier to discover planets that are closer. Hmm. And so what we're finding right now, first thing that we're finding is these close-in planets that are close to these dim stars. Um, but when you work out the numbers, the amount of light they receive, the amount of energy they receive from their star is about the same as the amount of energy we get from the oh, sun. Oh, interesting. Um, that's really all we know. That's it. We don't and, – and we know their size. And that's it. We don't know if they have atmospheres. We don't know if they're lava planets. We don't know if they're – We don't know if there's life there. We yet. have no idea if there's any kind of life there. But the sort of the first criteria – uh, for life that you would want is that you know you'd have a nice Earth-sized planet getting about the right amount of energy from its sun. That's not the only requirement for life. We think yeah. that there might be um, other ways to get the energy and other ways to do things. But but when it's a you great start. you say they're 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 closer, but they're closer in relation to space. Like so, they're forty light years. Right. So explain th- explain what it would take for us to get there. Okay, yeah. So the one of the main things I, I teach in, in astronomy, probably the number one thing to learn about astronomy is the sense of scale. Yeah. So and the problem with it is that it's it's outside of our brain's capacity because right. it's just it's just too far. So the distance between the Earth and the Sun, um, you know. So if you imagine the Sun's like a basketball in the center of a, of a of a basketball stadium, the Earth is like a pea, maybe fifty feet away, and the nearest star is in London. It's thousands huh. of miles away on that scale. Yeah. And so stars are hundreds of thousands of times further away than – even the closest stars are hundreds of thousands of times further away than our planets and the sun. And so we got to Pluto. Um, Pluto is about 40 times away, as far away from the sun as we are. Uh, it took us about 10 years to get there. 10 years to get the orbiter or whatever they call it. New Horizons. The New Horizons yeah. to mm-hmm. Pluto. And yeah. it just flew by, right? It yes. Yeah. Just it just keeps going. Yeah, it just keeps going. It's on its way out of the solar system. Does it keep um, transmitting back? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. we're going to get data as long as that nuclear battery works. That's right. Yeah. I'm actually part of the team that's going to – they actually have redirected the spacecraft a little bit to fly by another object. And so I'm How part great. of the team to, to look at that. And then after that, they'll keep studying the outer solar system, what dust and plasma and stuff are out there and – uh, and for as long and for as long as it'll go. That's yeah. awesome. Um, so this then is so if Pluto is f- um, how many? It was ten years away. Mm-hmm. Right. How far are forty light years from us? Yeah, to get to get there with our current technology would take about a million years. Hmm. Um, so it's, so it's going to be a while. <laughs> <laughs> um, there is uh, recent chatter about some ideas of getting. Uh, space probes, they're much faster than we've ever even thought possible. But it's really in the very early idea stages. And so um, maybe, maybe, um, you know, if technology works out in the right way, maybe, maybe in 100 years we might have close-up pictures of these planets. Close-up pictures, uh, but really... Not not from us, but from... From from these these little uh, orbiter cameras. Yeah, little cameras, yeah. But I I guess in the end that... um, the mere fact that we now know they're there, I, I guess everyone will start training more attention hmm. solutions. How does this – because it came out of NASA, which almost mm-hmm. seemed to re-energize NASA or just give it all a lift again. And I, I guess we've been doing the same thing when we think of um, Mars and travel to Mars. Um, it, Is it picking up? Are we going to do more space exploration now than maybe the last 10 years when things have kind of quieted a bit? 
Well, so I guess it depends on on your perspective. We this kind of a discovery was made from uh, well, it was made from a telescope in space that NASA put up. Yeah. Um, although originally the first planets were found by a ground-based telescope. And so we, you know, on the research side, we feel like the research has been coming along at a pretty good. You've been doing uh, it anyway, click, yeah. Um, and um, it's only, you know, when we find these major discoveries that it sort of uh, pings everybody's radar. So I think the, you know, uh, NASA just, for example, announced they were going to uh, an asteroid in the asteroid belt that's made out of pure metal. Um, because it used to be the core of a planet. And, um, you know, I think right now, probably right this day, the thing that we're all kind of waiting on is what is the new administration going, going to, to do? do? Um, you know, and um, more maybe more emphasis on human spaceflight, maybe less emphasis on Earth studies, maybe more on planet. I mean, we just... You, you know, don't know. Well, that's that's the... So the problem is NASA missions take 20 to 30 years to, to kind of conceive, do, build, launch, and run. But the political cycle is much shorter than that. So yeah. <laughs> NASA kind of gets jerked back and forth. But When you think of um, these exoplanets, uh, there's seven of them 40, million, or 40 year, light years away, which would be about a million years to get there mm. at current technology. How, how many kind of uh, habitable Earths would you say could be out there? Yeah, so that's actually a really exciting discovery that we've really picked up on in the last – a few years. Forever, man has wondered, you know, what's out there? How many planets are out there? And in the last few years, we actually have learned the answer to this question. Hmm. And so um, it kind of goes back to this this system as being a prototype because, like I said, we're able to discover things that are close into their star. Exactly. You know, co- copies of the Earth and the Sun system, where the Earth is kind of far away, you know, it takes right. a whole 365 days to go around. These planets take one, days, one day or, or seven wow. days or yeah. ten days. So that to detect the Sun-Earth kind of like system is actually still just out of our reach. But these kinds of systems that are much more compact turn out to be very common. Really? And these little dim stars where these compact systems then make temperate climate are also very common. In fact, basically every star in the galaxy is one of these little one of these little dim stars. So it turns out that when you run the numbers of about the right size and about the right distance from the Earth, on average, roughly one planet per star. Really? And there are 100 billion stars in the galaxy. So we're now talking about Holy tens cow. of billions of yeah. potentially habitable planets in our galaxy alone. In our uh, galaxy. In our and galaxy. There's 100 billion galaxies. So, worlds without number, yes, they say. Yes, worlds. Um, and so we're now How looking amazing. at, at uh, billions upon billions of planets. Now, maybe these planets are – Well, yeah, but statistically, know, yeah, well, there's got to be there's another gotta be, one. Yeah, I mean, you know, so far we have no, um, uh, you know, no information on anything beyond that. And that's actually the, really the tricky part. Yeah. Discovering these planets is great, but now – I mean, we want to know, right? right? Now do they have – you know, oxygen in their atmospheres. Yeah. You know what's going on. Do they have Netflix? Uh, right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Well, I mean, you got to be. You got to know. Right. So, um, so the the problem with that though is that for almost all of these planets we're discovering, learning that next level of information about basically what their atmospheres are like. That's kind of the key thing. It's like 30 years down the road. It's not, this, oh. it's not the next telescope. It's the telescope after that. Darren, your job but, is horrible. I know. <laughs> you it's have to be patient. Wait. Very patient. Yeah. So, but, but this particular system, the TRAPPIST-1 system that was discovered, is actually sort of close enough and bright enough, yeah. as I mentioned before, that the next major 
Space Observatory, the James Webb Space Telescope, kind of like the successor to the Hubble Telescope, it could kind of start. It could help us. We we might get some early information um, on what the atmospheres of these planets are like. So so that's kind of where we're going. I mean, if it doesn't, it's got to be, it's just humbling. Right, it, it really it's is just humbling. It really is. Um, well, I tell how little my, we know. Yeah, well, and and also the size scale of the universe. You know, I tell my students by volume, you are ten to the minus eighty of the universe. Right, so zero point zero 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 eighty zeros, and then a one. That's you. That's you. Um, but that but you, being said, but right, you think you're the king of the world. Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> but that being said, as far as we know, um, you know, scientifically, um, you're the most intelligent, complex, yeah. beautiful system in the universe, right? Yeah, you hit, um, you hit so, payday. Yeah, so, so people – I mean and this is all part of the you – know, there's sort of implicit in this discussion that we want to find life. We right. want to find intelligent right. life because that would be so cool because intelligent life is cool. So even though you're small right. by volume, you're, you're still the coolest part of the universe. Oh, my heavens. Interesting insight. Let's take a break. We're going to come back more with uh, Professor Darren Ragazine as he uh, walks us through the solar system and all the many, many learnings for, for life and uh, hopefully making your life more hopeful. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. We have Professor Darren Ragazine with us today from Brigham Young University. He's an assistant professor of physics here at BYU. He also he teaches astronomy and physics. And uh, he's walking us through the discovery of seven Earth-sized planets orbiting a nearby star um, in the TRAPPIST-1 star. Is that the name of it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, uh, by the way, it's called – it's an ultra-cool dwarf. Yeah, that's what I was saying before. It's a very faint, very dim. Now, cool meaning faint and dim. Yeah. Mm-hmm, right. And dwarf, not a negative term. No. Um, meaning? Uh, so stars come in different sizes. Sort of your typical normal everyday star is actually a dwarf. When stars begin their process of dying, they get huge and they turn to giants. And so, Oh, interesting. Um, so this is sort of regular, everyday, yeah. middle-aged star. This is um, – I, I love having – Smart guys on the show, because the rest of us we do, we but you just basically I think brilliantly shared how unique we are as humans for what we know of the of um, of space, but we, we also we're rare, but and we really know so very little. Oh yeah, yeah, we're we're learning more all the time. Yeah. Yet we feel so confident at times. <laughs> Talk to me about. Um, what what are some other things that just the average human we don't we don't quite get when it comes to our world and I mean even the safety we we talk about you know global warming all of the environmental movements um, how it seems like too the Earth global warming aside the Earth is a pretty strong thing oh yeah yeah very resilient so yeah. when you think about um, what what does the average Joe need to know from what your science is finding. Um, that's a great question. So I think the you know the, I think the one thing if I could tell everyone something about astronomy, it would be this sense of scale that 
you know, the Earth is 100,000 times smaller than the distance to the sun, and that's 100,000 times smaller than the distance to the nearest star, mm. and that's 100,000 times smaller than the galaxy. And our galaxy is about a million times smaller than the whole universe as we know it. So it's just – And there's, just, n- there's just a never-ending billions of galaxies. Yes, yeah. And so it's just this, this sense of scale of – and and I have to use numbers like that because if I try to oh, keep going yeah. with that analogy of oh there's the basketball that's the sun. you run out of space and then yeah and then it's yeah you know, it just doesn't work so um, so the you know that sort of idea that and and I think you know it really kind of going back to how interesting we are as intelligent beings it goes back to this idea that we could figure that out yeah right we this isn't just you know wasn't given to us we. You know, through through study and and uh, and things like that, we're able to figure out what the universe is like. Uh, I think the other thing that we uh, talk about there's that scale in space, but there's also a scale in time. Uh, we understand the universe to be about 14 billion years old, um, and so um, you know we're we're a small <laughs> fraction, also. Yeah, and <laughs> also you're going to live time. your 78 years. Yeah, right. So, and, and you know, I that that being said, any one individual could change the universe, mm. right? Because you could be the one that makes the space program go and then we start to explore planets and then, you know, it grow. You know, I mean, so it's, it's, it is at the same time, like you said, humbling, but also, um, also good to know. Um, I think the, you know, the, we, a recognition um, of that for, and one one thing that space also does, this perspective also does, is really kind of actually helps us band together as humans instead yeah. of apart, right? Because when should, you look right? at the Earth right. from space, there's no little line saying, no. "Oh, I own this part and you own that part, and I rule," you know, and, yeah. and you can't touch my, you know. And so that kind of sense of we're all in this together, right? Um, I think also comes through. What does it? Um, because you also you're a professor here at Brigham Young University, and. LDS, the LDS Church is, you know, the supporting structure or the organization of, of at the university. What's it like? What does it do to your belief in a higher power, to your belief in a god, when you just as a pure scientist, do you do you see an order to it? Yeah, absolutely. I think the, um, you know, in in one of the LDS scriptures, there's this this verse that says that. Everything denotes that there's a God, and the fact that the planets move in a regular way mm-hmm. gives us this sense that some, that the universe is an organized place, yeah. and that implies an organizer, right? It doesn't prove it, right. um, but um, but that certainly comes through. And as I'm teaching my classes, you know, as there are my, my class, I used to be a faculty at, at Florida Institute yeah. of Technology. Um, and my, the content of my class is effectively the same. It's exactly the same. But I can add in these little things of, oh, you know, the fact that there are lots of these worlds yeah. is actually in in the scriptures. It's in Joseph Smith's revelation on on what Moses saw. Right. The part of the creation story that we have from the Bible talks about our earth. But before that, apparently Moses learned about all the other earths. Yeah. Um, and so and so we can kind of tie in some of those. Uh, does it components. does it help you as a scientist to have a faith system, a belief system? Many would think, you know, our faculties on our campuses around the country are not they don't they don't have enough believers or ha- that have a faith system. Do you think it informs you? It sounds like it does. Well, it's kind of interesting because. The, basically, the first rule of science or one of the first rules of science is that 
what you personally think doesn't matter. Yeah, suspend. Um, yeah, it's all about um, uh, and the idea of self-skepticism is really important. Of unless I could convince everyone that this is true, I might be biased. You know, I might be seeing it my own way. Mm. And so, in that sense, you know, when I play by the rules of science, um, I, I'm not allowed per se to, go to bring there. that in. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that my uh, faith and understanding and and ability doesn't enhance uh, my understanding of what I'm seeing, my ability to uh, to learn more, my uh, and the conviction that yeah. that, that I have, you know. and even and yeah, prompting to new discovery or to new Certainly. insights. Yeah, well, I think it's fascinating and complicated, Darren. We're going to have you back because I. I got a million questions. Sure. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. Like, I, one I just found out if we just get a rocket up to a million miles an hour, I guess it'll go a million miles an hour forever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If it's in space. If yeah. Once we get it, it into space, out of the gravitational pull, I guess it'll mm-hmm. go a million miles an hour. Yeah. So we just yeah, got to build going. a rocket that can get up to that speed and then it keeps going. Yeah. Yeah. And how hard is that? Um, it's pretty hard. Um, and then if you want <laughs> to, if you want to slow down, then oh, that's a whole yeah, other then, problem. Then, yeah. You know, yeah. I don't even go there. Yeah. It's tricky. <laughs> oh man. Good stuff. Darren, uh, Darren Ragazine's his name. Um, he's a professor here at Brigham Young university. We'll have him back, pick his brain some more. Now we got an astrophysicist in the house. Fun times. Stick with us folks. <laughs> we'll you. be back. Thanks Darren. We'll uh, come back, visit our good buddies at BYU sports nation. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. A little traveling music for those that are just pulling in. Spencer Linton's joining us. Jason Shepard. Hello, gentlemen. Hello, Matthew. Are we, uh, are we getting into some mischief in the uh, early 1920s? <laughs> yes, you <laughs> rascals. Lappers, <laughs> raccoon coats, pianos. <laughs> wow. Are you breaking into song? This is great. Actually pretty good. That was really good. Back in the Roaring Twenties, Matt. Hey, um, guess what? We just, we, I just had an astrophysicist on my show. Uh, we're astrophysicists. You no. have it on every day. No, but like, no, I thought you guys were brain surgeons. Like a legit one? A legit Both. one. Astrophysicist? Yeah. So you heard they found seven new planets, seven new uh, Earth-like planets. Yes. Pretty cool, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's just 40 light years away. Pretty cool. Isn't that cool? Are they ready to bump yes. Pluto back up to a planet? No, no, no. It's still going to be a dwarf planet. Because I, that's, I, I know that's, you're that mad. My, I know. I'm old enough to remember Pluto was a full planet. Oh yeah, oh yeah. He was demoted. It's bad. <laughs> but, um, but this, uh, the, yeah, we got together uh, us and the uh, solar system. And look, you're you're just not you're not you're not cutting real, it, man. You're not you're not you're not cutting it. You're not there yet. <laughs> you got to go back to the minor leagues. Um, we found out that it's going to take one – using current um, resources, using current technology, it would take about a million years to get us to these planets. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Ironically enough, that's how long it's going to take BYU fans to get over the loss to St. Mary's. <laughs> the exact amount of time. That means that loss is four, 40 light years away. Yes. Yeah, getting over it anyway. That is, I'll get over it sometime in the next 40 light years. You know what? I think it's nothing that the NIT can't fix. If BYU gets matched up with Utah, oh. absolutely the NIT. Which is a very real Hold on. Utah could really that. go to the NIT. 
Are they they're going? both going to be in it. They're both going Are to be they in really? the NIT. Unless Utah wins the Pac-12 tournament, not happening, they wow. will be in the NIT. Holy cow. This could be exciting. Oh, baby. I wonder if the odds are better than of, you know, us getting to the, these exoplanets. Mm. It's probably Meeting Utah? Yeah, Utah versus BYU. I'd say the percentages are much higher. Because there's only, what, 62 teams in the NIT? Or 32. How many are in the NIT? 32 in the NIT. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is those are good odds, one in thirty-two. Yeah, the, there are sixty-eight teams to make the NCAA tournament. Some of them auto bids, so that's what's fun about these no-name teams that get in. And then you think the thirty-two best other teams that don't get into the big dance, mm-hmm. they make the middle-sized dance. The middle-sized dance. Yes. We call that the junior high dance. Yes, the little brother dance. This is the, I guess the interesting – this after all the hullabaloo about B, Utah not wanting to play with BYU or play BYU, and then they'd still have to play. Wouldn't it just in the NIT. be amazing? Karma. Tom Holmo joked about there being a conspiracy theory that because Utah didn't want to play BYU, now they have to play BYU like they did in the Las Vegas Bowl. Yes. <laughs> and now yeah. they pay to get out of the contract this year. <laughs> Don't there's, mess there's with chance. us. Well, they're paying to get out of the contract. Uh, yeah, they're still paying. Wonder if, I wonder if they would want a refund. Hey, we played you anyway. Larry yeah. 20K right now. He still <laughs> owes BYU 60000 bucks. apparently. Oh, boy. That was expensive. And then, and then the NIT forces him to play. You know what? Let's make this happen. Yes. Let's, let's and the just... thing is, like, if he has to pay $80,000 and there's a chance that BYU could end their season, that would be unbelievable. Yeah, that would be pretty sweet. That would be better than the Sweet 16. Hey, you paid us 80000 bucks, and we ended your season. <laughs> All is right in the universe. All is right in the 40 light years that we can discover. Holy cow, this is like a black hole. We're going into a black hole, a yes. vortex. Interstellar. This is great. We're going into the fifth dimension. But now don't we have to, we'll probably have to, get, we'll have to get through the first round, maybe. Yes, yes. Yes, and with this BYU team? Never know. One game at a time. <laughs> One game at a time. <laughs> is is that what you're talking about on the big show? Well, the type of loss that BYU endured, suffered uh, against St. Mary's, it doesn't happen very often. And it's one of those times where you really have to assess your allegiance to BYU athletics and maybe refocus some of your energy to some of the other sports so that you can distract yeah, yeah, yeah. and help uh, lift some of the sting. Right. So today we are discussing where is your BYU fandom right now? Where Where is your refocused fandom? Is it still with basketball? Are you with them to the last bitter drop of basketball on the NIT or wherever it is? Or have you put it somewhere else now because it's like, I just... My emotions are spent with basketball. I need to focus on something else. I got to move on. I got to move on. Yeah. That's a great question. I mean, I'm with Cosmo, just so you know. That's we who, all are with Cosmo. That's all I think about now. We yeah. stand with Cosmo. <laughs> we are, though, going – we're going to discuss that. We'll get the uh, the peeps' reaction sure. uh, on BYU Sports Nation. Uh, we are going to talk NIT uh, with John Templin mm. from uh, NYC Buckets. Just a great – Website, by the way. Yes, he currently has BYU as a number three seed yes. in his latest NIT bracketology, which would mean BYU would be at home hosting a six seed, so they would have at least one home game in the postseason. Oh, that if would be that good. If that were to hold true. Yeah, yeah. If they're we all referring know that to NYC it. Buckets is the worldwide leader 
when it, it comes to projecting the NIT. Nobody covers Bucketology. the NIT bracket sure, like absolutely. NYC Buckets. <laughs> so it's a big deal. We're also going to have Brian Logan on the show. We're going to talk some, uh, some spring football Who? with him. Brian Logan, is he still around? Below. Yeah, he's, he is. <laughs> he's the best. That's so good. We're, we're going to talk with him. And, uh, you know, just, uh, just have a good time. Some wackiness will ensue, I'm sure, at some point. Oh, sure. Usually you guys end up throwing things at each other, and then the hose comes out. <laughs> hey, uh, sounds like a great show, guys. I'll let you go. you got four minutes. Go get okay. your hair done. Okay. Hey, Alrighty. remind me to ask you a really important question about uh, little kids and their choice of clothing tomorrow. Oh, yes. Okay, for sure. We need, no, yeah. Don't forget. Write it down. No, I am. I'm writing it down. And when I tell Jeff, Jeff never forgets anything. Okay. okay. So little kids and their clothing choices. Clothing choices and tomorrow. little children. Okay. okay. Good, good job. Okay. Have a good show, guys. Okay. Clothing choices of little kids, that's kind of an interesting tease because now I'm dying to know what he needs to know. I bet he's got a child that that dresses kind of crazy. Cute little kid. Hey, uh, Austria, listen to this. A man tries to enter a courthouse with a bag of roaches. It's not going to happen, my friend. Security guards at an Austrian court might need to put up a sign at the screening gate to let public know about another item prohibited on the premises, cockroaches. State broadcasters said Wednesday that the security personnel in the western city of Linz turned away a man a day earlier after he tried to enter the court building with a sack full of six-legged pests. The report did not say why the man had the roaches or what he planned to do with them. I mean, it seems obvious. He's going to eat him. He's going to feed him to oh. a lizard. Oh, I thought he was going to take them in there and eat them. No. You sprinkle some chocolate. Mm, a little salt. Ooh, the salt especially. You've got yourself a crunchy treat. You've got crunchy, salty, and sweet. Oh, and then that hidden surprise inside. Mm, the nougat. It's kind of like it's, – it's basically a nougat. I don't think they call it nougat. I think they call it ooget. Sounds about right. Ooget. Mmm, finger licking good. Hey, uh, as you know, we like to end the show talking about a hero story. And this hero, holy cow, this is one smart, I don't know, tough cookie, I guess is better. Please say a Pennsylvania man who doesn't know how to swim jumped into the deep end of a pool at a New Jersey hotel and rescued a boy from drowning. Fairfield police say a Patterson woman and a male companion were in the pool at the La Quinta Inn on Thursday with her five children, who range in age from one to nine. Police say none of them knew how to swim, and the nine-year-old went underwater. The companion ran to the front desk for help. Police say 37-year-old Randolph Tejada Perez of Hazleton, Pennsylvania, was checking in. Tejada Perez, uh, who doesn't know how to swim, jumped into the pool and after several attempts to reach the child, pulled the boy out and the boy is now in stable condition. That is a pretty gutsy move. Police are calling Tejada Perez a hero guest. He, uh, a guest at the hotel, can't swim, jumps in. Would you jump in if you couldn't swim? It's crazy. That's amazing. And uh, that's how heroes are made, my friend. Not easy, but uh, sometimes you just do things. You don't quite know why you do it, but it's just the right thing to do. And it turned out for him and for the boy as well and the family. That's the show, my friends. We can't do it without you. Please join us every Monday through Friday, 9 to noon Eastern time. Uh, You can also look us up on iTunes, on Stitcher, on BYURadio.org. We're everywhere. We'll be back tomorrow with more ideas, more information to help you love longer and live, live healthier, happier lives. We'll talk again tomorrow. Make it a great one.